episode 83. This is Matthew, and in this episode of Still Unbelievable, Andrew and I will be reviewing and commenting on a Christian podcast called The Night and Rose Show. A link to the YouTube upload is in the show notes. There are a couple of points in this episode where I have inserted additional comments during the edit where I have done additional research. These links are also in the show notes. Finally, this episode is very long at three hours. I normally like to keep our episodes to under two hours and did consider splitting this into two episodes. If you as a listener have an opinion on episode length, please let us know on reasonpress at gmail.com because I would like to know if our listeners would prefer long episodes like this split into multiple episodes or if you are happy with a single long episode. I will adjust that output to what you prefer. Here is our discussion. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Still Unbelievable. If I've got my maths right, this will be episode number 83, or might even be number 84. If both those numbers are wrong, I'll probably cut this bit out, but who cares? (laughs) Right, so what we've had is the last few episodes that you've had on Still Unbelievable have been me chewing apart various Christian episodes. This time I've actually managed to nail Andrew down and we're going to together chew apart a Christian podcast. But before we get to that, since this is the first time we've actually spoken properly together for quite some time, how the devil are you, dude? It's been a while. Glad to hear your voice. Oh, it has been a while and and glad to hear your voice uh, as well. And I must say, I'm looking forward to chewing something apart this morning. I haven't had breakfast, so this will be a good opportunity to feed. Doing okay. I don't know if the listeners know. I haven't been around much lately because uh, we're starting a new business, my girlfriend and I. And without going into a whole lot of detail, it has to do with boating and marine safety. And so we've got a new company coming up there and it has really been uh, it's really been quite time consuming to put all of the right certifications in place and to do all of the things that we need to do to have that company recognized. So that's what's been going on with me. I will have more free time in the not distant future. We're getting through the early startup bit. And Matthew, as you know, starting a new business is is heavily front loaded, right? There's just lots of things to do early on. And uh, this has been a time consuming process uh, because it is safety related and because there's a, a lot of demand on the things that that we actually have to qualify. We are getting through that and probably by September, I'll have a, a more free time. I'm looking forward to that and to us getting back on a more regular schedule. Yes, this year really hasn't panned out the way we expected it to. We started the year with a, with a new desire to do a schedule of podcasts and a whole long list of guests that we were going to invite and uh, have conversations with and pretty much zero of that has happened for various things you've been really busy it's been fun for me to catch the odd update of you when we've managed to have an offline catch-up but the scheduling to try to get us to have a conversation has been really difficult I flagged up last year that my own work I'm employed I don't have all the things of having and of trying to start up a new business but my employer was taken over and we've got loads of businesses coming in. I work in an IT department, which when I joined the company three years ago was five of us. We're now nine, nearly 10 people. So it's literally doubled in three years. And I'm still just as busy as I was when I joined. So I'm finding 
that is really tough on me as well. And so my free time is a little bit challenging as well. So there's lots going on for us. In the last couple of weeks, my wife decided that it was time to have a puppy because we were clearly not stressed or busy enough. So you mentioned something about chewing stuff over. We have a little chewing teddy bear monster in the house and she's not doing well with sleeping at night either so we're lying in bed listening to this howling machine downstairs because she can't handle us not being in the same room as her so that's just added a whole new dimension to existence so life is very very interesting at the moment (laughs) doggy volume that's you need doggy volume (laughs) actually i don't know but i know that when we have been able to talk offline and, and we try to we try to do that for the listeners and you know we're, we're friends as well as podcast partners so we try to do that but when i have talked to you it's been a regular theme that you've sounded tired and that you've been heavily work constrained if there's anybody in my circle of friends that might be busier than me i think it's you <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah it's uh, been weird but on a positive note i talk about my daughter every now and then she's literally just finished her a levels here in the uk so we've got a little bit of calm now for that because supporting a teenager through those exams is is difficult in in its own right Mm. and of course we've now got the university placement so so you mentioned september will become a calmer time for you september i'm hoping will become a calmer time for me because the, the daughter will be away from home in university her life will become far more autonomous from her perspective much less dependence on her parents emotionally i don't think i'm prepared for that so there i've got that shock to enter my system but it will be a change in my lifestyle maybe that will mean that in the evenings i'll have more free time to be able to have these conversations with you so maybe the, so 12 months ago we were promising that in january this year things would change we'd be able to get a decent schedule down now we're promising that september we're going to get a decent schedule down i wonder what what these changes are going to bring to our lives that will completely render all of these promises that we're making null and void oh well you know some kind of divine intervention will certainly uh will certainly toy with us (laughs) yeah that sounded like you were trying to segue into something Oh, uh, well, okay, so it actually was accidental, but I will segue into that thing now. So for the last six or seven years, I've had an open challenge to theists. And Matthew, you and I talk about it regularly here on Still Unbelievable. For those who believe in faith healing, we want to see some evidence of faith healing. you, You can call that a test. You can call it research, you can call it anything you want, but if you make a claim that there's a a supernatural being that can tinker with the fabric of space-time and and do some magic to to do something like heal someone of epilepsy or regrow a limb or whatever, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, well, we would just like to see reproducible evidence of, of such a thing. I was down at the playground with my daughter yesterday. So yesterday at the time of this recording, yesterday was Thursday, June 30th, 2022. So we're down at the park and my daughter makes a a new friend, a, a little girl. She's six years old and she's at the park with her grandmother. Her grandmother's a nice lady. She's uh, from Russia, grew up in Ukraine, now lives here 
uh, in the United States with her daughter and granddaughter. Quite a smart lady, by the way, I, I reckon intelligent. She speaks four languages, Russian, Ukrainian, German, and she's learning English. So we, we had some trouble with English because it's her fourth language. So the little girl, the six-year-old, is translating for us, and, and we're having a really good time together, uh, getting to know each other, and, and we're even enjoying uh, the struggles of translation and, and watching her daughter, uh, her granddaughter, rather, uh, translate for the two of us. And uh, so as things go for me, it's, it's obvious that I have a prosthetic. For the, you know, if you've, if you've ever seen someone with a glass eye, right, it sometimes can be very obvious. Mine is not all that obvious, but she's an observant lady. So she asked me, what happened to your eyes? I'm used to answering this question. It doesn't bother me. I'm generally happy to tell the story. Uh, so I, I tell her, you know, I, I lost this eye when I was uh, 18 months old due to an eye disease called Coates disease. The next question she asks is, can I pray for you? Not the usual question that I get after telling someone about how I lost this eye of mine. Uh, but I do have an open challenge here. Uh, and so in for a penny, in for a pound, I, I told her, yes, uh, she could pray for me. And uh, we're down at this nice little park. There's a lake here. Uh, and uh, so we, we walk over to the to the picnic bench because she, she wants me to sit down for this prayer. Uh, so I go over and I, I sit on the bench and I'm, I'm facing the, the lake. Uh, and when she prays, she puts her hands on my face with her thumbs over my eyes. I'll tell you that that weirds me out, Matthew. I was okay with the whole praying thing, right? But um, this lady that I've known for 10 minutes, this is really overly familiar for me. I'm, uh, I don't generally like to be touched by strangers, and uh, so this was very strange. But I didn't say anything. Uh, and the reason I didn't was, was at least twofold. Uh, first, what if she can do this thing? What if, what if she can call on this... Uh, master of space and time, right? And, and give me normal human sight back. That'd be pretty cool, right? So let her get on with it. And the other is that Emma's playing with her granddaughter and they're getting along well. And I don't want to do something um, that would negatively impact the two little girls playing together. So I sit through this attempted healing. And, uh, and she's praying in either Russian or Ukrainian, and uh, my apologies to the listeners, I have no idea which language it was. It wasn't German. And it wasn't sure it wasn't tongues? Well, no, but it sounded, it sounded like a Soviet bloc language. So, okay. you know, I mean, so hey. Just clarifying. Sure. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe the God of the universe backs Putin. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going there. I am not going there. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I mean, look, the, the war That's in a Ukraine, whole other show. <laughs> it's a real thing, dude. I mean, maybe. <laughs> so, so she gets to the end of this prayer and it's, and it's clear that it hasn't worked. Why? Because she's got her thumb on my glass eye. 
at least on the eyelid over the glass eyes. So it's pretty clear to her that her prayer didn't work. Now, I wonder, had it worked, you know, would she have like pressed on a new flesh and blood eye? Would she have tried to squish it or something? <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, and I didn't really wonder that at the time. It's only now that it seems kind of amusing. So it doesn't work. And so when the prayer's over and she moves her hands, she says to me that this this God that, that she imagines has a new plan for my life. Now, mind you, she doesn't tell me what the new plan is. She's just convinced that this God who didn't, who didn't answer her prayer has a new plan for my life. Now, it very much seems to me that if he had a new plan for my life, he'd have answered her prayer too. But doesn't. Doesn't answer the prayer. Very much seems to me that the plan for my life is the same one that I've always had because he didn't intervene. Right? But it's worse than that. Because there's no intervention, she ends with this. When you go home today, God has a new plan for your life, and you may be healed by tomorrow morning. Yeah. And I just want the listeners to think about that kind of ending. She is so convinced that in the face of direct disconfirmation, she can't disbelieve. Yeah. Okay, thank you for letting me share that. And and for the listeners, I have I have shared that for you and for me, and because memories fade. And I want in this show, I want some hard targets where things happened on a timeline and, and even if one of us gets the exact time that it happened wrong in the future because memories fade and memories are fungible. This recording is the day after. And that is a true telling of the story, if you believe at all, that I am an accurate reproducer of the things that I experience, at least in the near term. That's okay, brother, gracious. That's, that's I'm, your response. I've got lots of thoughts. Your response certainly was gracious. I'm not convinced that I would be but I can see that the way that your mind was thinking was for you, you saw this as an opportunity to be able to restate the sequence of events. And you had in your mind the challenge that you continually make on this about somebody through prayer, bringing your eyesight back. Mm. So you have def I th you are definitely more gracious than I would be. Um, you don't need to answer this, but I'm wondering how, Alison would respond if she had been there with you. So we did talk about that. Um, I'll, I'll tell you that it made Alison uncomfortable. Uh, now, Allison, because it was in Allison, front of your daughter? Yes. Well, that's part of it. Uh, although I'll tell you that our response yesterday is different than our response this morning. So we'll be talking about this for a while, right? Yesterday, we were a little upset because this really made Emma nervous. Emma stopped playing with the little girl. I won't mention her name, right? She's, she's not my child, and, and she's a minor, so I won't mention her name. 
but Emma stopped playing with the little girl and came and crawled up in my lap. So that, that's how long this prayer went on, long enough for my little girl to realize that something strange and for her to get worried and come and, and crawl up in my lap. But this morning, so was, she, she was nervous. She didn't like it. Or at least it seemed unusual. She never said she didn't like it, right? But it was enough for, for her to to be uneasy enough to come and check on me. That's the point. Okay. This morning, I just think she got to see the failure of this kind of crazy prayer. And while, would I do it again? I don't. I don't think I will, Matthew. Not not with not with Emma present. Yeah. But in retrospect, we live in an extended community, extended family, where there are people who either claim to be or to have witnessed faith healings. Well, whether there are faith healings in the world or not, my daughter witnessed one fail. And yeah. so that's probably not a bad thing. Yeah, that which leads me on to my other point. But before I get to the serious point, I want to make a really mm. lighthearted point. Mm. The reason why you're not healed is because she didn't spit on any dirt to make mud and rub it on your eyes. OK, and I'll tell you, that would have been a hard stop. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't do it properly. Well, you know, so that that park is full of geese, several dozen geese. And no, they're no, you, no, because yeah. I don't know what you're spitting on. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't want fecal bacteria being rubbed into your eye sockets. That's not going to bring your eyesight back. No. <laughs> it would be a bigger miracle, though. <laughs> uh, oh, hold on, hold on. I can heal you from both of them. Just wait, I promise. Yeah. Um, but guess what? I have to rub my hands in this time. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, um, but the serious point, this is the, this is an example of religious privileged overreach to the extreme mm -hmm. because she felt entitled to do that. She felt entitled to do that because of the environment in which she's living. The American society gives her that entitlement mm -hmm. on to do that kind of request to a stranger and then to do it so publicly in front of children. There is so much that is wrong and inappropriate about that, but that apparently doesn't trump entitlement. Then if you just said no, it would have been your fault for being rude. So you were yeah. put into a difficult position already just by the question being asked. And then now, on top of all of that, because it failed, it's now your fault that it failed. So, And this is just pure yeah. and simple religious privilege. There is no other way to do it. And this is why it is so toxic to our society. Sorry, your society. Look, I, I agree with every bit of that. Um, and even at the time, uh, the whole thing made me very uneasy. Um, in fact, if I'm being honest, I'm still uneasy about it. And I don't know if that's coming through at all. Uh, but I am. It, it still makes me squirm inside uh, a little bit. Uh, 
And I don't think I would do this again um, with my daughter present. If someone said, hey, I've got this faith healer, you know, come and meet them in the in the Walmart parking lot because they can heal you. Uh, I, I might take someone up on that as a as a continuing part of this open challenge that we share regularly here on Still Unbelievable, right? And and just to renew that in brief, it doesn't have to be healing me, right? If you think God doesn't heal atheists, that's fine. I've got an extended community, hundreds of people that are amputees of some kind. And many of them are Christian believers. We can find an amputee uh, of your particular Christian denomination. And all we ask, we'll help pay to send them to the healer, bring the healer to them. All, All we want is open access to see the thing happen so that we can accurately report uh, on on some faith healer that can actually get the job done. So listeners, if you know a faith healer and they happen to be in Africa, okay, fine. There are planes out of the U.S. There are planes out of the U.K. There are planes to Africa. Don't let that be the thing that stops you. I've got friends who will pay for lodging, plane tickets, room and board. So... Faith healing is on trial here. It's still unbelievable. Yep. If you're prepared to uh, put yourself to that test, put your faith to that test, put your God to that test, you know where to find us. Reasonpress at gmail.com. We're unconvinced that you can do anything. It's up to you to prove us wrong. The challenge is there. We would love to see it happen. We're doubtful. I know I'm very, very doubtful. Prove us wrong impress me you you might get two christians out of it and some of our listeners might follow we shall see what have you got to lose besides your dignity right so moving on what have we got planned for our listeners like because we weren't here to monologue about this this was just us catching up and you managed to come in with that juicy story it's almost as if the universe planned for you to have that experience the day before we were getting together that's the hidden message there isn't it somebody will see god's work in that fact the christian god is telling christians that he's not all powerful yeah (laughs) he he manipulated things so that this story could fail so that he could tell okay look i have no idea yeah but we do have something else to offer today you did a good job finding this i'm really i'm really looking forward I listened um, to quite a few Christian podcasts. That's how this one came up. Mm. So, who, who is the podcast? Right. So before we get there, so we've recently done, I say recently, there's been a couple of my episodes in between, but we've not so long ago done an episode on the minimal facts argument where you and I mm-hmm. chatted through. That was the last time that we actually sat down and recorded together a couple of months ago. All right. And so we recorded our conversation about the basics of the minimal facts argument why they don't convince us why we don't think they work so that's what we're that's what we did a while ago and i have found it's a new christian podcast it's only started this year 2022 it's called the night and rose podcast and their very first episode episode one april this year they're talking about making the case for the resurrection of jesus and they talk through parts of the minimal facts so we thought let's get 
Christians talking about the minimal facts, why they convince them, and let's put their reasoning against how we feel, and we'll commentate on that. So that's what we're going to do now. The original podcast is about 40 minutes long. I don't know how long we're going to talk about it, but judging from past experience, it's going to be about four and a half days it's going to take us to go through through this. But we'll do our best to chop it down into something that's a bit more manageable. Right. So four and a half days. <laughs> Yeah, somebody at the back of the room is going, four and a half days, you're having it a laugh. Didn't you mean four and a half weeks? No, <laughs> exactly. We've heard you people before. Right. So let's just hit play, go through the air introduction and we'll get to the juicy bits and we'll do what we've done before. And we'll pause it and we'll. We'll talk through what's been happening and we'll cut bits out and we'll see how this goes. Right. Are you ready, Andrew? Oh, more than ready. Okay, let's go for it. Welcome to the Knight and Rose Show, where we discuss practical ways of living out an authentic Christian worldview. Today's topic is the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I'm Wintry Knight. And I'm Desert Rose. Yeah, let's start by saying Happy Easter to all of our listeners. Just before we begin discussing the resurrection, I do think it's helpful to remind everyone who wants to discuss the resurrection with a non-Christian that it can be very helpful to establish the existence of God using arguments and evidence so that there is someone there who can perform a miracle like the resurrection. I'm going to stop it right there. That's why I wanted to play this introduction, because this them setting it all up is where it immediately goes really really wrong for me oh, it's so first of all first of all i liked their little touch in the introduction where the one running the introduction managed to do that pause so that the other person could pipe in and say who they are maybe we should mm. adopt that strategy <laughs> so I'm, I'm i'm not making fun of that that, that that's wrong but yeah, before they even get to the minimal facts to try to establish the resurrection, they first need to try to establish that miracles are possible. And in order to try to establish that miracles are possible, they need to establish that there's a God. So they need to get you to a God first before they can do anything else. But of course, once you believe in their God, everything is possible. Well, and I just look, I don't I've, I don't have any choice but to pull this play out of your playbook. He said get them there through arguments and evidence well no arguments aren't evidence but at least he drew a distinction he said arguments and evidence so at least he's he's saying that i mean obviously you and i take a a position that's very much the case of the evidence is pathetic if it's there at all but that's a different point Uh, but arguments is really where it's going to be and there are going to be some, at, at least to my mind, there are going to be some spots in this show where I think there's a serious failure of evidence-based thinking. And yeah. and we'll just point those out when we get there. Um, yes. But the, the thing to, yeah. And, but the, the point that I wanted to make from this bit is running into the whole of this, they have, in order for any of the rest of this show to work, they must first get you to the point where you accept their version of God their description of God to their standard. You have to accept that first before any of the rest of this show can be applied. And for me, that's the problem because the barriers to getting me to accepting that 
are so insurmountable, we may as well just stop here and walk away. Well, I think so. And at the very end, wintry night, is it my getting, I think I'm getting that right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, wintry night, desert roads, I think is yeah. what they said. Right. So he is going to give a list of, of five arguments that he thinks supports uh, the, the notion of the God that, that he would propose. And, and I say the God he would propose because I actually don't know. Uh, because these are new, this is a new, this is a new show, right? We don't know much about them, so I don't know what he would say. The attributes of the God that he worships is it, it would be a Christian God. I'm not saying that it's not a Christian God. I'm just saying I don't know anything beyond that. Is the God infallible? Allah, uh, you know, the the New Testament. So is he verbal plenary inspiration? Um, how does this God? Uh, deal with apparent contradictions. Is so is he a middle knowledge uh, kind of thinker, right? I, I don't know anything about the God that he proposes, um, but he is going to give a list of arguments that he thinks works to to prop up the Christian God that he believes in. And so, if we continue to listen to their shows, we may end up doing another show about the kind of arguments that he thinks necessarily precede this sort of uh, uh, evidence for the resurrection, minimum basic facts. Yeah. Right. So let's carry on. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, good thing to note, because if you're going to convince people that the miracle of the resurrection happened, it helps that they already agree there's some sort of creator, designer, miracle worker who could perform such a, a deed. Yes. So, Rose, you get into a lot of discussions with people. Why don't you tell me what is the most standard way that you present the resurrection? Well, the argument I find most effective, most convincing, most powerful is known as the minimal facts argument. So scholars have noted over the last several decades that there are several facts surrounding the life, death, and apparent resurrection of Jesus that are agreed upon by virtually all scholars, regardless of their worldview, their religious affiliation, anything like that. So just based on facts agreed upon by virtually all scholars in this area, we can use those facts to make a case for the Right. Now, we covered this a little bit, didn't we, on our episode? Mm. And we've talked about it a little bit more. Do you want to say something about how this has just been phrased about the number of scholars that accept minimal facts, the emphasis being on facts? Well, I, OK, so I, some of it will be exactly what you would say. But there is a, a thing here that I think goes unpointed out. There's the idea here sort of implicitly that if you agree with these minimum facts, you should just be a Christian. And that's what they're going through here, is that these minimum facts should get you to proof of the resurrection and that you can therefore depend on these minimum basic facts as the necessary foundation for Christianity. Well, the question that doesn't get asked quite this way very often is, then why aren't they all that convincing? Mm -hmm. Right? There are many, many, many scholars who say, oh, yeah, something happened here. We can agree on a lot of these facts. I'm still not a Christian. If you're being honest about this subject, you should then say, why is that? Why is this not all that convincing? Why isn't this the knockdown argument for Christianity? 
you're only left with a couple of choices. Either the non-believers are dishonest, or there are important things about these minimum facts that don't get you to Christianity. And I think we're going to tease that apart as we go forward. There's also something else going on here, and it's a feature of the study that's being done. The vast majority of the kind of scholars that they're talking about are people who believe this stuff, and so they are studying it to try to enhance their understanding of their belief. Mm -hmm. The people who don't believe this are not quite so motivated the same. So the number of New Testament, etc., scholars that there are who are non-believers in this field who are not Christians is actually a smaller percentage. So when you say, oh, the majority of scholars who study this accept these things to be true. Well, if the majority of scholars who are studying this are already Christians, well, then of course they're going to be the ones that believe it. But let's remember the belief came and then the study happened after the belief. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of them, like Bart Ehrman most noticeably, but he's not the only one, will have fallen away from their faith as part of the study. And some of them would have found ways for the study to continue alongside their faith. There are critical scholars that aren't Christians. Richard Carrier comes to mind. Like I said, Bart Ehrman, who's, who's fallen away. There, John Shelby Spong. There are plenty of scholars um, who have been introduced to these minimum basic facts just don't buy them and have fallen away. If you say, okay, many scholars agree, even most scholars, you've still got a problem. This scholarship has not been convincing enough to save the parking lots of churches all around the world. So people are leaving Christianity in record numbers. If this was the Christian God's plan to have these minimum facts percolate up through history and for this to be the way that people can uh, sort of gird their faith, remain in Christianity and fight the gospel fight, it wasn't a very good plan mm. because it's failing. Yeah. So I always have an issue with this scholars thing. It, yes, I understand the point about there are lots of scholars that accept this, so maybe us lesser mortals ought to consider it too. But I do have an issue with it specifically here because these are people who are already believing. And yeah. I I'm pretty sure that we could make a case for the vast majority of those scholars were believers first and scholars second. Yeah, I think, and that's, I think right. that's important. Right, let's carry on. The resurrection, that is the best explanation for the facts. Wow, I'm surprised that there is such a consensus among virtually all scholars. So why would they agree with these facts? Well, there are several criteria that scholars look for in determining how historically reliable something is. One of them would be multiple attestation. So if several different sources confirm the same event or the same facts, then that's, of course, considered more powerful than if just one historian. Like having multiple witnesses to a crime. Yes, exactly. So we have that with the Gospels and especially the letters of Paul. And we have this with the. I was on board with this until the Gospels <laughs> got brought up. Yes, if you've got multiple attestations and they're all truly independent, then yes, absolutely. I'm fully on board with that. That's not a problem. The trouble is you don't actually have that with the Gospels. 
That's right. I'll say this here. I'll come back to it at, at some point later on. But the minimum basic facts argument, the way you get to this minimum basic facts sort of argument is by throwing out all of the things where the Gospels aren't harmonized, right? And, and so I, I think that the minimum basic facts argument is a little dishonest on its face. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as a for instance, have Jesus having the Last Supper, but John does not. These are all the people that say that they were spending time directly with Jesus, but the Last Supper is not agreed upon through the four Gospels. So it can't be any part of a minimum basic fact. Why? Because the Gospel accounts don't agree. And so I think all you've done with the minimum basic facts is cherry-pick some things that are correlates to this notion of the resurrection, and you've just gotten rid of everything that's not a correlate. Yeah, so, and you've also got the bits of the Gospels where it's quite clear that the Gospels are copied from each other. Right. So Mark has a Q source. They're going to talk about this, aren't they? Because Matthew and Luke appear to use a prior, earlier source together. So, uh, yeah, there's a sourcing issue here. We're going to get to more of this sourcing issue when we get to Paul. Yeah. So they're not truly independent. But yeah, but Paul was also mentioned there. But when you're trying to establish the case for all the resurrection, it's a complete red heading to throw Paul in because Paul isn't an eyewitness account to the resurrection. That's right. You can't use 1 Corinthians and Galatians as two different sources if you think they were both written by Paul. The source is the person, not the book. Yeah. Yeah, so, just because he wrote down things twice, it doesn't mean it's two separate uh, and independent uh, accounts. Right. Events surrounding the life of Jesus and his death and what people thought were appearances. And so Mark attests to the circumstances very early on. Paul in his letters attests to a lot of the same facts. We have a source. Uh, there was some source that was commonly used by Matthew and Luke as they wrote their historical accounts. And, mm -hmm. and so we have several different sources that have a lot of agreement on facts. And so this is one example of a criterion that convinces scholars something really mm -hmm. happened. That makes sense. I just want to say this about sources. So she talked about uh, Mark having an earlier source, Matthew and Luke having an earlier source. We don't know anything about those sources. In fact, the Mark source is called the Q source because we don't know who Q is. The Matthew and Luke source has a specific name in literature. It's another letter. I don't remember what it is. It doesn't matter. The point is we don't know anything about those potential earlier sources. And so there's some amount of reserve that has to be applied to a source that you can't identify. Yeah. And that source is not an additional to the Gospels. If, you know, if you've got that's two right, Gospels, right. if you've got two Gospels that share the same source, that's not three sources. That's one source. Right. If I write a biography of you based on your autobiography, it's, it's, it's really not a biography in the sense that I did any independent research, right? It's just me basing my views on whatever you said about yourself. And um, so, so, yes, there's a, there's a problem here with source identification, source verification and reliability. 
And this is the kind of thing that we teach grade school children where we're teaching them to write research papers, right? Mm -hmm. We teach them to critically think about sources. And I think that Knight and Rose are not being particularly careful about what they're calling sources. Yes. And there's another thing to bring out here is one of the important factors when looking at a source is the question, what do you know about the author? Because the author right. is important. Does the author have biases that they're trying to put into their text? Yes. If you're reading an account of a king and it's painting the king in a really good light, and then you look at the source and the source is a king's son, you go, oh, OK, maybe there's a spin that's being put here. Maybe some of those really nice, fanciful things that are being written about that king should be taken with a little pinch of salt because they're being written by somebody who's close to the source. You, it's really important to know who is doing the writing when it comes to something like that, because you get an indication, you get a picture of what their motivations are for saying the things that they say. And here with the Gospels and with the source to the Gospels, we don't know anything about the people that wrote these original texts. We don't know who they are. So there's very little we can get from that. And that doesn't make this, these texts better. It makes their reliability, their trustworthiness somewhat worse. That's right. And calling these books Matthew, Mark, Luke and John is just a convention. It's not as if we know that Matthew wrote Matthew and Mark wrote Mark, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. There's a lot of ungrounded attestation yeah. going on here. And it bothers me and it should bother anyone that wants to think very carefully. I'm not saying that you can't reach the Christian conclusion. What I am saying is you should think very critically about what you're accepting here. Exactly. There's also early attestation. Of course, something that was reported earlier and closer to the events is considered more reliable than something that happened, you know, than something that was reported hundreds of years later. Historians agree that the letters of Paul were very, very early, really, as far as um, ancient history goes. The Gospels were also very early, but there's a consensus that Paul's letters predate the Gospels. Early enough for eyewitnesses to be around? Absolutely. Yeah. There's something she said right early on in that bit, and that's about the closer something is written to the event, the more reliability is assigned to what is being said there. There's a yes, but in that, you know, we've mm. mentioned it, that particular point here before in terms of the destruction of the Twin Towers in New York. Very soon after those happened, there were people talking about inside job and mini mute destruction, stuff like that. All of it utter bullshit. You know, the closer the account does not automatically mean the more true it is. All that helps you to gain is if you've got text now thousands of years later and you've got text which you can put close to the event and you've got similarity, you can put a reliability on the transmission of what was said. But it doesn't necessarily mean that what was originally said is actually true. You need something else to verify and validate that. And if you're relying purely on temporal proximity to a certain to truth, then you're going to make some really serious mistakes and you're not going to have a way to sift the mistakes from the validation. I have nothing to add to that. That is exactly my view. That's a, a strong argument in favor of uh, the trustworthiness of these historical documents. No, not strong, so, yeah. not strong okay. at all. So it, if it's multiple and, and one of the sources is early, that's a good sign that it's historically reliable, whatever the tradition is. What else? So there's also enemy attestation. So if your enemies 
um, or skeptics or people who don't have any reason to promote your account, your, you know, your testimony of what happened, if they agree with you on things, then that's also going to lend more credibility to those facts. Do you agree with that, Andrew? I, there might be a yes, but in here. First of all, I think I want to just ask the listeners to note that what they don't do here is come up with someone that I think is a credible enemy. So I think we're going to get into to maybe Pontius Pilate. I think we're going to get into Josephus. We might get into Tacitus. These aren't people who could uh, credibly be called enemies. Yeah. Of Christianity. So I think there's a deliberate misframe. Well, I don't know if it's deliberate. There is a misframing here of, of what an enemy is. But I want people to think about something else, too. The Bible is not a book that is intended to be a neutral source. Okay. When you read the Bible, you don't get a sense, at least I don't that the view of the enemy is being accurately recorded. In fact, how often are the acts of enemies from their perspective ever recorded? Um, So who were the enemies of Christianity? Well, you might be able to do some real historical research there. But if you're depending on the New Testament to give you an accurate representation of the enemies of Christianity, you are wasting your time. Yeah. And so let's say, for example, we found a document which was written either by Pontius Pilate or one of his senior centurions. Mm. And that talked about the resurrection account and also talked about Jesus being seen afterwards. That could be challenging. You know, that could be a problem. Obviously, we'd have to validate that it wasn't a modern forgery, blah, 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 blah. But let's assume for argument's sake, that that was validated and it and was found. That certainly could be very challenging. If that document wasn't actually found, but was referenced by the Bible, referenced by Paul in one of his letters, but we don't have access to the to that document that he's referring to, that's not an enemy attestation. That's a yeah. friendly saying that an enemy said that. Yes. You know, that's... That doesn't count. That is, by definition, poisoned evidence. So we need to be careful about what is being applied here. And yes, in this little bit here, they don't give an example of what an enemy attestation is. So that's key to remember. They say it. And so you're left thinking, OK, where is it? Uh, and uh, as Andrew hinted, we get to some of that a little bit later. OK, is that all of them? I know there's also the criterion of embarrassment. So, for example, the Gospels report that women were the first witnesses to the empty tomb. And this is just not something that would have been made up in those times. In fact, a lot of people in those early days uh, rejected the Gospels because they said, well, you can't trust women. Women's testimony wasn't even permitted in a court of law. And so this is something that just would not have been made up. So that's an example of embarrassment. And then there's also. I always cringe with embarrassment when I hear this one. Mm-hmm. There is a serious point here about the representation of women. I'm wondering if Christians over egg how serious it, it was for him. But I'm prepared to to accept that it was really problematic. 
the thing is, what's being described about what the women are involved with here is, as far as I'm aware, something that women would be expected to do. They would be the ones that go and wash the body and uh, uh, apply any ointments, mm. etc. That was their job. That was what they did. So you wouldn't assign this to a man. That's right. And there's a there's another. So this is a hot wash. It's a thought that has only just occurred to me. So we'll have to tease it apart and see if it holds up very well. But why not? This is the God of the universe who twists space and time to slowly reveal the, the scheme of redemption, starting at Genesis and ending uh, you know, with the last words of the apostles. This God clearly, if you just believe the story, has a lot of power, right? Why even end up with the principle of embarrassment? Uh, why are there not men to lend some reliability? So, you, so, you know, you want, why not have men and women? It seems to me that when it's asked that way, uh, the principle of embarrassment doesn't stand up all that well. Uh, God could have had this any way he wanted. And so he chose the principle of embarrassment uh, as as a, uh, you know, as a as a determiner of fact. When he had all the other possibilities open to him, one of which would have been to have men involved at the time. Which would have lent the story more credibility at the time. Yeah, so this one doesn't really work for me. I think it's one of those things that's uh, put in there. They're trying to make it a bigger deal than it actually is. Yeah, I'm not convinced by the principle of embarrassment. I don't think that women in Roman society were in such desperate straits as is commonly relayed by Christianity. Anyway, there were strong women figures in Roman society. Yes, that um, is true. So... I'm not sure what you're getting out of the principle of embarrassment. No. Plus, also, all good narratives have a dip. You know, mm. The hero doesn't sail through the story perfectly doing everything right. You know, that makes for a really boring story. You need the dip. And right. This is the dip. This is the apparent failure before for the big comeback. You know, this is the standard narrative flow. That's a good point. The criterion of dissimilarity. If something mm -hmm. was not common before an event and it was not common after an event, then it's likely that that fact you know, really occurred. So, for example, Jesus referred to him re himself repeatedly as the son of man. Well, the Jews did not refer to the coming Messiah as the son of man, uh, nor did the mm -hmm. church refer to Jesus after his lifetime as the son of man, that was just not common. And so it's highly likely that Jesus really did refer to himself that way. Okay, so multiple attestation. I'm really confused by this point. <laughs> right, he could have referred to himself as the great potato. Too, I know. So what? It's, yeah, it, <laughs> I, I, I just don't know how to, how to process my, huh? <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, yeah. Okay, so I call we myself to... Matthew at work. Most of my colleagues refer to me as Matt. So fucking what? Oh, well, that clearly means something. We have no idea what it means, but it clearly means something. Yeah, I. So, yeah, I don't, I don't get it. And, and by the way, this whole son of man thing, there's some, there's some 
controversy around that in scholarly circles. I can't talk about it with any degree of authority because I don't, I don't remember what all of the controversy is and talked about it. You know, back when I was in college, which has been long enough ago that I don't, I, I can't dig up the conversations. But it's not as if Son of Man carries with it some necessity of outcome. And, and, he, and, and if it did, if Son of Man carried with it some necessity of outcome, you would wonder then, why didn't anybody around Jesus refer to him as Son of Man? It's not like the apostles and disciples, oh, well, you know, that's Jesus, the Son of Man. So it's a very, like you, I just don't know where she's going. I I really don't. So Multiple sources report it. One of them or both of them or all of them are early within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. If you can get your enemy to agree to something that you report, that's good. If the thing that's being reported is embarrassing to your message or your community, that's good. And if something is unique to Jesus, it's not shared by the people who were before him or the people who came after him, but just his own thing, like the Son of Man title. These things all make a historian think this is historically accurate. So what are the facts that pass most or all of these tests? So there are a whole bunch of them, but scholars today use about six of them really commonly. So the first one would be that Jesus was actually killed by crucifixion. The next would... I think we acknowledge that we are prepared to take that one on the show that we did, talking about the Mm -hmm. real facts. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... One thing about about the principle of embarrassment that hasn't been mentioned so far. Wintery Knight says here, if you can get the principle of embarrassment, that's good. I'm not aware of any other place in historical study where non-theological historians have a criteria of embarrassment. It's possible that I'm wrong. I'm not a historian. I'm not making a claim about tools of historians. I'm only saying that when I studied history in school, the few classes that I had to have in college, there was not a conversation about Oh, this was embarrassing to the other side. So there, you know, this this was this was embarrassing to the Union, or this was embarrassing to the Confederacy, or this was embarrassing to the British royal crown, and therefore, because of this principle of embarrassment, we can know that that fact is true. That's a really good point. I'll investigate that, and I'll put in a note here in the edit about what I found in the show notes. So check the show notes to see if I actually did find anything about this. But I think you're right. Modern historians do not look for this as a criteria when checking out and examining claims about the past. They look at other things. This is not something that features in their thinking. It feels like it's something that some Christian apologist down the road who's not a historian thought would be really funky to throw in because it added an extra bullet point to its list. And now it's been adopted by everyone. I'll be interested to see what you find, because like I said, not a historian, it's possible I'm wrong. This is Matthew jumping in as promised with what I have found on the criterion of embarrassment. The first thing to note is it was really hard to find anything on the subject, and I ended up asking for help in the post on the Unbelievable Facebook group. Thank you to those who responded. The vast majority of references to this method are apologists using it to argue for the death and resurrection of Jesus. I could not find any example of embarrassment being an explicit criteria that historians use when examining texts. But there are a tiny handful of things that are said in a historical context that do fit. 
Link One is an article by Skeptic Inc. which critiques the criterion of embarrassment, which I think is a fair analysis. Link Two goes to a Pologia video where he talks about the criterion of embarrassment used by other historians. This section is towards the end of the video. Link 3 goes to a book called Oral Tradition, a study in historical methodology, where oral tradition describing battle defeats is mentioned as being likely true. Link 4 goes to a PDF which contains some details of Egyptian history, and some of the descriptions can justifiably be described as embarrassing though I don't think it's actually said that they should be considered true because they are embarrassing. Link 5 goes to the book that is referenced in the Pologia video in Link 2. Link 6 goes to page 36 of the book in the previous link, Link 5, where it's explicitly said that the wrongdoing is more credible because it was admitted to. That final example in Link 6 is the one which is most often referenced by Christians as an example of the criterion of embarrassment outside of Christian apologetics. Which leaves me wondering why they only focus on that one. Did they find it as hard as I did to find any other examples? The fact that it was so hard to find any example, and that those examples are essentially piecemeal quotes from much longer texts, leaves me with the overriding impression that embarrassment is not a serious feature of secular historical study. Embarrassing things might be listed as part of a bigger picture, but they do not appear to be a tool that is actively used as part of the historical research method. It's only Christians that put serious weight behind the idea. And with that, it's back to the episode. B that the disciples of Jesus believed they really saw the resurrected Jesus. Did the disciples really believe they saw the resurrected Jesus? I don't know. No, I, I know it says that they believed it, but that's really as far as we got. And this was effectively what we said when we talked about this before as well. This is a problem when examining things like this. You can't go into the past and get exactly what's in people's minds. This is why that this kind of detailed level of history is really difficult. You can examine what documents say, you can sometimes get a feel for what might be true, but you don't know absolutely, and you certainly can't get into people's minds to examine their beliefs. Yeah, if this was such a pivotal event in the thinking of the apostles and the thinking of disciples who were directly with Jesus and the thinking of the random townsperson who just might have happened to be, to be standing around, it is actually remarkably poorly attested to because this is the thing that Christians want us to pick up now and say, this is the bedrock of Christianity. You can pin your faith to this thing and be utterly confident that not only are we saying that people believed that it happened in history. No, no, no. We're, we're going beyond they believed it to this did happen regardless of belief, whether you believe it or not, this thing happened. So there's going to be a point where we're going to come back to this when we talk about hundreds of people and witnessing that and that sort of uh, having witnessed this. We're going to come back to this, but this is not all that well attested to. Where does Peter talk about witnessing the risen Jesus as a instance, right? Where are the independent accounts? Where are the letters that aren't in the Bible? 
where are the letters of the people who just happened to be smart enough to write letters to their friends and family who said, I saw the risen Jesus? Where are those accounts in history? Yeah, it would be cool to find something like that, wouldn't it? I think it would help their case because saying I found it in the New Testament doesn't do a whole lot for me for the reasons we've already talked about. No. Um, even scholars who do not believe there was a resurrection, there was a resurrection, believe that the disciples believed they saw the resurrected Jesus. So now we've got people who believe that disciples believe there was a resurrection. I mean, how many layers deep do you need to go before it's pointless? And what disciple? There's a general claim here um, with, with very little specific. So if I said all of the podcasters you and I know believe there was a blood moon on April 29th, you would naturally say, well, Andrew, are you qualified to speak for all of the podcasters that you know? By the way, I have no idea whether there was a blood moon on April 29th or not. I don't think there was, but it doesn't matter. You would still ask the same question. Am I qualified to speak for all of the podcasters that you and I know? Well, no. And in the same way, I don't think that any particular biblical source is qualified to speak for people who don't have independent accounts in their own words. Mm. Right. Got it. So another so-called minimal fact that virtually everybody agrees to is that the enemy of Christ, Paul, the apostle, who actually went by Saul before he became a Christian, uh, became a follower of Jesus when he believed he saw the risen Jesus. Similar. This you know, has got to be so, so tenuous. Uh, my head I'm hurt. sure the listeners, know it. the listeners know where we're going with this already. You know, Paul that was an enemy of Christ. When did he declare that he was an enemy of Christ? After he stopped being an enemy of Christ. All right. Okay. Right. Okay. We'll scratch that down to enemy of Christ attestation. Do we? Re I don't think we need to say this. Our listeners know where we're going with this. Well, sure. So there's the road to Damascus conversion. I, I won't say a whole lot about the road to Damascus conversion because I'll just get snarky and, and abusive. And I'll just say this dude sees a light and hears a voice and now he thinks he's seen the risen jesus i'll just leave it there and let you have the rest of it <laughs> well <laughs> i tell you where my mind's going with this one of the other christian podcasts that i listen to is the side b podcast mm. and the side b podcast is a podcast which basically is people telling christians telling their story, why they are now a Christian. And quite a few of the guests on the Side B podcast are people who converted to Christianity as adults. And when you listen to those stories, those people who say that they were atheists before they converted to Christianity, without exception, they were always the worst possible kind of atheist you could possibly imagine. There is no atheist who was worse than them in terms of hating on Christianity and buffing on the Bible and all, all this kind of thing. They were really, really, really bad. They were the baddest, badliest, baddest atheists ever. But now they're Christians. Yeah, it mm -hmm. suits the narrative and it really feels 
like Paul is doing exactly the same thing here. You know, not only am I an affirmative believer in Christ, but before I was that, I was the baddest, badliest, baddest ever person against Christ. And this is what I used to do. Yeah. I, from a historical perspective, do you know what evidence there is for a Saul that became a Paul? A Paul that actually murdered Christians, that kind of thing. The thing that the typical Christian Sunday school says about Saul before he converted. I remember precious little about what extra biblical stuff I might actually have about that. Yeah, me too. It should, hopefully, with the assistance of Dr. Google or other internet search engines, I might be able to find something. Check the show notes. I'll probably put in the comments here during the edit as well. And I shall see what I can find. Me again. And what I did find is in link seven. It goes to a Gospel Coalition article, which is titled... No, Saul the persecutor did not become Paul the apostle. It's quite interesting. See what you think. Similarly, James, the brother of Jesus, was a skeptic. He did not believe Jesus was the Messiah during Jesus' lifetime. But he also became a follower of Jesus, became a Christian when he believed he saw the risen Jesus. This is all written in the Bible. You know, the one that is all pro-Jesus. And, and so here's a very strange thing for me. It's a very strange thing for me. Why is James converting after Jesus' death more convincing than a James who said, hey, you know what? I've got this brother. I'm able to hug him every day. We sit down to meals together. I so believe in my brother that I followed him through the wilderness. I tried to go through the 40-day tribulation with him and I was told no. I begged to go up to the mount, but I couldn't go. And if he had only let me, I would have witnessed the transfiguration. Uh, I was there when the doves descended on him and the voice of God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. These are the events that are happening around this brother of Jesus, supposedly, during Jesus' life. And uh, he's not convinced. Why is him being convinced after Jesus' death somehow better? Yeah, this really does have the feel of something that's placed in there, inserted in there by emerging legends that get written afterwards. Mm. It really does have that kind of feel. And again, it's somebody who assigned self-assigned enemy status afterwards. You know, this isn't a true enemy. This isn't somebody who fought against it for the entirety. So I think they're twisting the definition of enemy attestation somewhat here. These are friendly attestations. Agreed. So these are four of the facts most commonly used. There are two more Mm -hmm. that I hear used all the time today. So the early proclamation of the resurrection in Jerusalem. So scholars agree that within one to three years of the crucifixion, we have evidence that Christians were proclaiming the resurrection, and they were proclaiming it right there in Jerusalem, where the event supposedly took place. So people had the opportunity to say, no, I was an eyewitness. This didn't happen. But that was not what was happening. Eyewitnesses attesting to the accounts that were going around of what happened. And then does this include the dead bodies rising up and walking around the city? Right. So that's uh, Matthew 27. 51 to 54. 
if I remember correctly. So that's, uh, you know, the, the crucifixion and then the former saints get up out of their grave. By the way, those former saints had to be Jews. In case anybody's wondering why. Because there were no Christians before Jesus died. The, the church isn't founded until Acts chapter 2. These people that were buried in the ground, what do we mean by saints there? I don't think these are the people we're talking about. So I don't know. Yeah, it's um, I think this one to three years thing is but certainly at the, the top level of estimations. The, the documents that we have are many years later. The range at which people are putting these earliest accounts varies. And I think they've gone for the bottom end of the window. There is a top end of the window as well. And I think it's worth pointing out that this this range that they've mentioned is the bottom end of a wider range that is actually being set. I get the sense, too, perhaps it's uncharitable. Uh, I, I don't mean to be. I do have this thought that, you know, OK, one to three years later, you have people proclaiming Jesus in Jerusalem. OK, great. But if it wasn't in Jerusalem and it happened to and you had people one to three years later proclaiming Jesus in Ephesus rather than Jerusalem, They'd be saying, look, one to three years later, we had these people in Ephesus proclaiming Jesus. Isn't that amazing? My question is, why is this noteworthy? Yeah, and remember, as mentioned before, within weeks, we had people talking about the falling of the Twin Towers being a conspiracy and not actually being planes. This temporal proximity thing isn't an indicator of truth. You need something else on top of that. Yes. And also the lives of the disciples were transformed. They had been cowards. They had been doubters. And they became courageous, bold apostles preaching this message of a resurrection, even knowing Uh, that their lives were at risk for doing so. Go on, say it. Well, okay. she she doesn't understand when the disciples became apostles. (laughs) The, The disciples became apostles before the death of Jesus. Matthew chapter 10 or Matthew chapter 11 is when Jesus proclaims that the 12 around him are no longer disciples, they're apostles. So it's just just a misunderstanding of the life and times of, of Jesus. They didn't become bold apostles after his death. They were uh, appointed apostles well before his death, well before. Interesting. So these minimal facts pass the critical test that we outlined earlier. You know, picking up on one of these facts, I am surprised that virtually all critical scholars accept that there were postmortem appearances of Jesus. Give me an example of somebody who accepts this. Yeah. Interesting that you said virtually all critical scholars. Do you mean scholars that are critical of the resurrection narrative or scholars that adhere to critical thinking? It wasn't clear to me. I had that same thought and um, not teased out well enough for me to to figure it out. Okay, let's carry on then, see what he says. So um, one example would be Gerd Ludemann. He is a liberal German scholar who rejects miracles. He is not a Christian, and yet he agrees that these appearances were something that actually happened. Paul, James, mm-hmm. the disciples believed they saw the risen Christ. And Okay, so there's going to be a link to stuff about uh, Ludemann uh, in the thing. But notice that two things were said here. First, he attested that 
these things happened, then we hear he attested that they believed that these things happened. You know, which one is it? Because the two are not the same thing. So you need to pick your narrative, dear Christian, and stick with it. You can't keep flip-flopping like that because when you get sloppy with the technicalities of what you're saying, you lose accuracy and then you lose respect. Right. And if he doesn't believe in miracles, by the way, then, and, and she's, Desert Rose says this, he, you know, Ludeman doesn't accept miracles. He doesn't believe in miracles. He's liberal. Okay, fine. If he doesn't believe in miracles, you can't turn around and say with the sort of conviction that she does that he accepts these sightings because it makes it sound like he, he accepts them as miracles. Well, if he doesn't believe in miracles, he didn't accept them as miraculous sightings. And so he clearly then must have some other view other than they are miraculous. And by the way, we're not going to get to his view. But it should be a note for any careful listener to their show that Ludeman has something to say about this that they don't actually get to. You going to leave that as a hanging tease or are you going to expand on that? I'm going to leave it because I think we're about to go through some of she's going to read a couple of paragraphs. OK, from him. Let's, let's get to that. And there is actually an excellent debate between Gerd Ludemann and William Lane Craig. And there was a book written up about it with the transcript and some comments from scholars mm -hmm. on the debate called it's called Jesus Resurrection. He, he debated William Lane Craig. He debated against William Lane Craig on the resurrection. Yes, that's Authority fallacy. Yes. Oh, that's that's skeptical. OK, go ahead. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so um, this book on the debate is called Jesus Resurrection, Fact or Figment. Of course, mm -hmm. uh, William Lane Craig is defending the position as fact, Gerd Ludemann claiming that it's figment. But either way, Gerd Ludemann grants these uh, postmortem appearances in wow. some form or fashion. Yeah. In fact, Ludemann had written a book, What Really Happened to Jesus, where he affirms uh, some of these facts. And so go, go ahead and tell us what he says. OK, yeah. Uh, why don't I just uh, maybe read from his words for a couple of paragraphs? Yeah, um, go ahead. So he says, the testimony of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, is the earliest text in the New Testament to make concrete mention of the death, resurrection, and appearances of the risen Christ. Here, Paul uses traditions which he knows from an earlier period. As 1 Corinthians is usually dated around 50, we may note first that the traditions which he mentions must be even older. This early text will be the guideline for our investigations. So there. So this is a bit that you wanted to make a comment on. Well, yeah, here's what Ludeman doesn't say. He doesn't say that Paul's writing guarantees that a miracle occurs. No, That's doesn't. not what Ludeman believes. And so the rest of this is just smoke and mirrors. We've done a bit of quote mining here and I kind of want to know to what end. Now, I think we're going to get to that in just a second. What yeah. the, the end that, that Desert Rose is hoping for is coming up, but I don't think she needed Ludeman to get here. And whatever all of this is about, it doesn't convince Ludeman himself. And so if you're, if you're listening, then you should be asking, if this doesn't convince Ludeman, then why not, right? Why isn't this convincing? And what is her point? I don't know what. Yeah, I also got the feeling here that she's getting excited over not a lot 
here really yeah. this text isn't saying what she's suggesting it's saying this isn't saying that Ludeman accepts that the appearances of Jesus happened as a fact that's not actually what this says he's acknowledging that these writings by Paul are the earliest accounts that can be found the word concrete there is they're the concrete earliest account not they're the earliest account or something that concretely happened yeah exactly. I think she's missing what's actually being said there and then he goes on to say they're clearly rewritings of earlier traditions. So Paul is basically repeating something that was in conversation that people are known about. But this is the earliest that we know about these earlier traditions. That is it. There's nothing there to get excited about. This does absolutely nothing to establish the truth of any of those things that's being said. If anything, it should tell you that these things have been talked about and spread about multiple times and at last somebody's got them written down that we've got them to but they've been talked about lots and shared about lots so there is a guarantee pretty much they will have changed by the time Paul got to write them down yes so yeah this really isn't something to be excited about sorry I just got excited <laughs> I liked it let's go just a quick note before we get back to the episode link eight goes to the PDF of the Ludeman debate with William Lane Craig. In his debate, Ludeman challenges the inerrancy of the Bible by making the statement, Just because the Bible says so, that doesn't mean we have to believe it or defend it. With regards to Joseph of Arimathea, Ludeman notes that the later the account, the more favourable the passage is on his relationship with Jesus. This is a theme that is returned to by Ludeman during the debate. He also goes on to affirm his hallucination hypothesis. But reading the transcript, it's clear that it is only part of his argumentation against the reliability of the Gospels. I think it's his weakest argument. And clearly, Knight and Rose think so too, because they spend much of their time in their episode attacking that, while ignoring the tougher challenges from his other points. This is telling. See link nine for details of Ludeman's book about the resurrection. Saying that 1 Corinthians 15 was very, very early attestation. Yeah, and he says that he's able to get the death, resurrection and appearances of the risen Christ as historical reports. Exactly. Yep, exactly. Okay, continue. Keep going. Historical reports. But remember, historical reports that were traditionally talked about and then eventually written down. You know, let's, let's go to the link. It's not eyewitness to Paul. It's talked about, talked about, got to Paul, talked about a bit more, written down eventually. You know, right. probably so a little just bit later. Down. Yes. Oh, sorry. He's just writing down stuff that he'd known about, that he'd had conversations about, had probably had multiple conversations about. You know, right. let's not over egg what's going on here. Let's be realistic about the transfer of these details. I'm not going to call them facts. Right. We're 10 minutes in. We're a quarter of the way through. Right. Let's go. Going. OK. A fairly he says a fairly certain date can similarly be worked out for the conversion of Paul as well. The Acts of the Apostles credibly reports a stay of Paul in Corinth when Gallio was there as governor of Achaia uh, in Acts 18. Now, this Gallio was in office in 51 and 52. If we calculate back from this date, the intervals which Paul mentions in Galatians 1.18 and Galatians 2.1 and add two years for traveling, 
the date of his conversion comes out at around 33, very, very early. Another uh, sentence or so. So is that AD 33 or is that 33 years after the alleged resurrection? So I got the sense that she was saying AD 33. I'm actually not sure there. So 1 Corinthians, um, so if we say it was 33 years after 33, we're talking about 66. I think Corinthians was, uh, well, I don't know when 1 Corinthians was written. So I'm not clear. I, I got the sense that she was talking about AD 33, which is, of course, one of the years commonly accepted as the crucifixion year, you know, April April of, of so that would be the same year. That doesn't feel right, does it? It being the same year, which is why I'm thinking it must be 33 years later, which is plenty of time for stories to change and evolve. Right. And I want to know why two years for travel. If you go through the Middle East tour of the Holy Lands, we're talking about events that all happened within 30 or 35 miles of each other. It's actually a remarkably small area. We're not talking about events that took place over a landmass the size of the continental United States. We're not even talking about a landmass as large as the United Kingdom, right? All of these events took place in a really small area. Why two years for travel? You can travel across the entire continental United States. Explorers did travel across the continental United States in a couple of years. So I, I don't get why we're adding two years for travel here. Is it just to get to AD 33? Because if you don't have that two years for travel, Jesus hasn't died yet. And the rest of the story about Paul doesn't make sense. Which makes me think that it's 33 years after, because yeah, it's the only way the mass works out, out for me. It, it, it's not clear. There's a, maybe it's not intentional, but it, it just feels like it's a, it's a sloppy statement, which doesn't make what's intended to be communicated as clear as I would like it to be. Mm. So we may state that the appearances mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, took place in the time between 30 and 33 CE, Common Era. Because oh, so she does mean 33 AD or 33 BC, yep. ACE. That's a, yep. Okay, so I'd like to know what year they're thinking of for the crucifixion and resurrection. Are they, they're talking about 30 BCE for the crucifixion and resurrection then? And then these journeys of Paul and his conversion within three years of that. See, that, that doesn't feel right to me because Paul had to have his whole period of persecuting the Christians. Right. So, yeah, I'd, I'd really be interested, you know, if we, if we can tag them on Twitter, maybe they'll be willing to come around and talk about some of these finer points. They seem like affable podcasters, the kind of people that you and I get along with. Maybe we can tease that out because I think yeah, there's some fine there's, points here. Yes, because there's some technicalities in what's being said here that simply don't add up for me. Because the appearance to Paul is the last in this list and is not to be dated later than 33 CE. Yeah, I see him pulling in some of the criteria that you mentioned, like he's going for multiple sources like Acts and 1 Corinthians. And he says 1 Corinthians is early. Uh, so right. this is probably why he accepts this, um, because it's passing your criteria. And then he even had the um, enemy attestation in there with Paul. 
Do, right, give yeah. me another. Do you know? I- yeah, so, so much of this doesn't make sense. So you've got this fake enemy attestation because remember, the alleged enemy attestation is written after the conversion. So it's, I was a really, really bad person back then. Look what I did, you know, but I'm a friendly now and I'm writing about it now. It's not true enemy attestation. Really, guys, don't mislabel it. And then we've got practically zero time at all for the whole persecuting period because there weren't enough Christians to persecute. So why would he be persecuting them? And then he's got this traumatic thing three years later it it just doesn't work Matthew jumping in on the edit again because I've looked up what Christians say about the timelines of Paul and Jesus to try and get some clarity on what has just been discussed in summary Paul's persecution of Christians is generally said to have started around 30 CE or soon after and his conversion to Christianity around 32 to 33 CE this fits with what Knight and Rose were just saying but Before you get too excited, compare this with the years of Jesus' ministry and crucifixion. The accuracy is much less precise. The years for Jesus' birth range from 6 BCE to about 4 CE, and almost every source has his years of ministry starting at age 30, which, in some cases, places the start of Jesus' ministry after the year of Paul's alleged conversion. Ignoring the age issue and going just with the approximate years, there is a range of 28 to 33 CE for the start of Jesus' ministry and a range of 30 to 34 CE for his crucifixion. Laying the Jesus timeline onto the Paul timeline reveals blatant mismatches. Paul's persecution of Christians seems to start much too soon for there to be enough Christians to actually persecute. The whole thing stinks of after-the-fact editing to make the story more exciting. See links 10 to 17 for various timeline sources for Paul and Jesus' lives, and see for yourself how much conflict there is. Christians have had hundreds of years to get this aligned. How have they managed to fail so abysmally? The only thing that is reasonable to conclude from this mess is that history is difficult and imprecise and that the gospel narratives are not only unreliable, but highly questionable. It's all very Any well other thought. non-Christian or atheist skeptical scholars who also accept things like this? Because this is, this is pretty surprising, I think. Sure, absolutely. I mean, just about any scholar you could find is going to agree to these facts. But I'll give you another mm-hmm. example. Atheist historian John Dominic Crossan, who um, is part of the Jesus Seminar, who basically, oh, yeah. yeah, they basically reject, uh, was it two thirds or so of the Gospels? Yes. And uh, he and, and miracles and such, he wrote a book, Excavating Jesus, Beneath the Stones, Behind the Texts. And he also debated William Lane Craig. There is wow. also a transcript of this debate in the book, um, mm-hmm. Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I like that title. That's a funny title. Yeah. So, um, I'll just read a couple sentences from that as well. Okay. Oh, wait, you're reading You're reading from that book or you're reading from Crossan's book? Sorry, I'm reading from Crossan's book. Okay. What does Crossan say? Yeah. So Crossan says, Paul wrote to the Corinthians from Ephesus in the early 50s CE, but he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that I handed on to you as of first importance, which I in turn received. The most likely source in time for his reception of that tradition would have been Jerusalem in the early 30s. When according wow. to Galatians 1.18, he went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. 
Okay, so these guys are saying... John Crossan is the, the guy that she was talking about. The Jesus and, Seminar guy. Yeah, the Jesus Seminar guy. And it's, and it's talking about a similar thing. So they've got Paul writing in the 50s, so 20 years later, but they're, they're also affirming that Paul's conversion was probably in the early 30s. So they're pointing back to an earlier time period. So again, for me, the mass of that early period for the 30s still doesn't work for me. I'd like more information about what's going on there. I agree because I had thought about what you've said, that there's not enough time for Paul to be the kind of persecutor that we talk about in Sunday school, right? His Saul era, if you will, that doesn't seem to add up. So either Paul, as Saul, was the evil, despicable dude that Christians need him to be, right? Because it's part of the story. Or he's not because it's just too early, this this particular account of, of Saul's conversion in the early 30s doesn't give enough time. If that's true, then we've got to revisit the whole way that Christianity thinks about Paul. He's identified other books, non-canonical books, and he says that these are more better and more reliable or or superior, I think is the word that I've seen used. But Mm. see links 18 and 19 for further details. Biblical scholars don't like these. So I'm going to read between the lines and suggest that maybe these say things that have been changed in the later Gospels. And it's the later Gospels that have been adopted by Christianity because they like what they say, but they're not, you know, <laughs> these, this kind of information goes against the what we've been hearing about. You know, why not go for the early ones, even if you don't like it? Because if it's earlier by your criteria, it's got to be more accurate. But the biblical scholars don't like the earlier ones. So, right. This kind of study for this kind of event that happened 2000 years ago in a period where recording wasn't as reliable as it is now, you're going to get messy mismatch of information. It's going to be really difficult to separate fact from fiction. And you end up with conspiracy and you end up with mixed beliefs. You end up with inaccurate reporting. And this appears to be exactly what we have for that period of time. That because they've got multiple sources, early sources, now they're bringing in Galatians into this and confirming with the eyewitnesses, Peter. They're saying that because it's these things are passing these historical tests, they're willing to give you the burial. They're willing to give you the appearances. Right. So they keep mentioning this passage. No, these people are not prepared to give us the appearances. The, the appear- right. They're prepared to say that the appearances are written about, you know, let's stop with the sloppiness they said yes people wrote about the appearances and yes it's probable that people believed that there were people who had the appearances but they're not saying yes the appearances definitely happened you know let's cut the sloppiness out if you're going to get to this kind of level of technicality it's important to accurately reflect what's being said because you end up making people like andrew and me cross and you end up misleading christians that's right. And don't make Matthew cross. That's a bad idea. <laughs> it goes green and ugly. This is from First Corinthians. Tell me about that. Yeah, this is considered a very, very early passage that was actually a an oral tradition, an oral creed that was passed along. Uh, they believe this because of the structure and language. And it took some time to develop this creed and, and put it into something so memorable, easily memorized, passed, you know, able to be passed on quickly and easily memorized. And mm. so this. So this sounds like a song that people sing. 
and everybody knows that the most reliable facts about history are in the songs that we sing. Right, right. And uh, and boy, the, so there's a thing here about oral tradition. It really, 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 really bothers me. And they are apparently buying the line that people that lived by oral tradition somehow had better memories than we have today. Oh, you were taught that as well. Oh, I so remember being told about that. Oh, and, and, and so this, this has been widely debunked. Yeah. It's widely debunked. But don't take my word. Look, Bart Ehrman has a whole section in a book. Uh, one of his, I will, I'll see if I can find it. I'm, I'm sorry, listeners, that I can't tell you exactly which book off the top of my head. But Bart Ehrman did a, a study of, of memory and oral tradition. But he's not the only one. But but let's just ask the question an entirely different way. If people 2000 years ago had better memories than we do today, what accounts for the evolutionary or adaptive change that caused us to lose oral tradition? as a way of remembering things because you, you can't just say oh well it was it was writing right so we, we suddenly we have the the printing press and bang our memories are worse yeah so so that doesn't work particularly why why doesn't that work particularly well because if, if people with oral tradition had fantastic memories there's no accounting for why they would give that up for the printing press but but let's say that they did um, evolutionary or adaptive change doesn't seem to happen in, when was the first printing press? Uh, 1600s, 1500s? It doesn't matter. Evolutionary change doesn't seem to happen on that kind of narrow time scale. So I just don't buy, maybe if you're a listener and you do believe that we lost the capacity to remember things through oral tradition. I'd like to hear a defense of that. Uh, but I don't buy that they had these oral traditions and all the people that depended on oral tradition had great memory, so that's a reliable method of transmission from one person to another. Don't trust that line. No, don't trust the, the word of mouth, the oral tradition. That's no, there's a word for that, it's called hearsay. No, it's oh, nice. not as reliable as we might like to think it would be. Nice. Structure in the language indicate it's very, very early. Let me go ahead and read that to you, actually. Mm -hmm. This is from the early 30s. Go ahead and read it yes. to me. Yes. Okay. So it says, so Paul is speaking. He says, for mm -hmm. I handed down to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then he adds, um, after this creed, he adds on his own. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Right. Oh, we know somebody who really loves picking this passage apart, don't we, Andrew? Mm, we do. We do. I'll just renew the objection that I had earlier about a person speaking for others. If you and I went to a small music concert, let's say it's in a small amphitheater, 
And so maybe there are only four or five hundred of us. It's just a little niche band or, or some band just getting uh, just getting going. You know, it's four idiots in a garage. Pretty well sums up every every venture out of a garage I've ever been in. OK, so four idiots in a garage and they go to play at this outdoor concert. Some big event happens. The lead singer, he gets struck by lightning on stage. So outdoor amphitheater, you know, it starts storming. Lead singer struck by lightning because he's holding a metal microphone. Are all 500 people in that amphitheater going to report the event the same way? What song were they listening to? I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say unlikely. I was answering your rhetorical question, but carry on. Well, so this is the thing that bothers me here. We know that they won't. We know that 500 people are not going to report the event the same way. And in fact, there may be substantial significant difference between the ends of the reporting. And so I've never been convinced by Paul saying, uh, and there are these other 500 people. First of all, 500 seems like a conspicuously round number, but hey, yeah. maybe that was a, maybe that was the number of Christian tickets being sold that day. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's a conspicuously round number, but it's fine because we do that. The thing is, I don't think there were 500 people, and I certainly don't think there were 500 people to be interviewed. But if there were, by today's research standards, what we would do at a minimum is poll them and report the differences. And we don't have that here. No, don't even have a name. Don't have a location. There is so little information about this. Yeah, I'm amazed that Christians put so much stock into it. It is a prime example of misapplication. It, 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 it really is. This is not how you do history. No. Ludemann was saying, Paul's appearance is the last, so the other ones must have happened first. And he thinks Paul's appearance is 33. Yes. So the other appearances are prior to 33 and Jesus dies in 30. Right. OK, that's impressive information and evidence. So I certainly agree that it's impressive information. I struggle with the word evidence because we've gone through quite a lot of things that have to try to be packed into at most a three year period. You know, are we really being realistic about this? No. We're not. By the way, just just to wrap up that last thought, I said by today's standards, by today's reporting standards, we would at least report the differences, right? We poll them and report the differences. And I can hear some Christian listeners saying, but we're not using today's standards. Well, that's right. And if that's your objection, what you have done is lower your standard for acceptance. And I urge you not to lower your standard for acceptance. Yes, because there's a bigger point going on here. If what we're talking about here, the resurrection of Jesus, really is a reliable historical event, and if it really is of the prime and significant importance that Christians want to tell us about, they should welcome the level of scepticism that we're putting onto it, because it ought to be able to stand up to it. Yes, indeed. From an apologetics point of view, why do I care about this passage? Like, what's useful to me? I, I know it, it's got some of the minimal facts, but 
people might argue against those, you know, minimal facts. So what 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 should I be noticing here? Yeah, well, one thing you might want to notice is that there were appearances to several different groups as well as to individuals at different times in different situations. And so, mm-hmm. you know, one of the most common naturalistic explanations for what people thought were the appearances of the risen Jesus, people will attribute, non-Christians, atheists will attribute to um, hallucinations. I think we'll talk. Hallucinations. Yeah, exactly. But so keep in mind that there were appearances to different groups of people of different sizes Mm -hmm. at different times and places um, who were, you know, in different frames of mind and such. Group. We don't okay, know that. so yeah, exactly. We we don't know that. These are all written down reports. We take the same view on that, and we, they are of unknown authenticity. Do you support the hallucination hypothesis, Andrew? Um, possibly. I mean, so because there's so much, because there's so little known here, it's hard for me to say yes or no. Yeah, look, I know that group hallucination is possible. But I'm not of the opinion that every event has to have the same explanation. Uh-huh. So as a, for instance, let's say that there was a, a small group of, of 15 or 20 people that experienced a group hallucination. There's nothing to me that necessarily says that a, another group of 15 or 20 have to have the same explanation. Maybe it's a sighting of someone who's across a promenade. And it happens to be a case of mistaken identity. And the the alpha leader in the group, I, I don't mean in, in the sense of some kind of fight, I just mean the most influential figure in the group says, hey, I saw Jesus. And, uh, and, and everybody's willing to go along with it. I, I don't, you know, if you've got different groups in different places, at different times, in different states of mind, then... Why would they need to have the same explanation? Yeah, I don't put much any store at all into the hallucination thing. I think it's highly unlikely that it's hallucination. I think the true explanation is something other than that. However, I do think that hallucination is more likely. Yes. But then, but then I think the reality of the resurrection is so low that that's not actually much of a compliment to the hallucination idea. Right. There are lots of other possibilities beyond hallucination and mistaken identity. You can have people simply accept for themselves as true something that someone else says, and because of their level of confidence in the other person, And in order to give a story more punch, they may say, well, I was there. And we've all had friends that do that. We've probably all done it. I've done it. I have reported as fact my presence in a place where I where I wasn't just for the story. Hopefully I've been honest later. I don't know that I was. (laughs) But this is just a thing that people do. There are even more possibilities. It is possible that there were direct, deliberate impersonations. Hallucination or not, Matthew, I am entirely with you that this is very much a David Hume thing. Is it more likely that there was a miracle or more likely that I, or is it more likely that I was deceived? It's always more likely that I was deceived than that a miracle that breaks the laws of nature actually happened. 
Why? Because it takes less to deceive me than it does to break the laws of nature. Exactly. Hallucinations are hard. That's not as easy to do as one person hallucinating something. Exactly. And then also there were appearances to Paul, who, as I mentioned earlier, was an enemy of Christianity, an enemy of Christ. So that's significant. Paul, But reported after he wasn't. And so we can't yes. trust that he wasn't overstating his status. So this is not enemy attestation. <laughs> Again, how many times right. is that? persecuted the church, which we see in Galatians 1 and Philippians 3. Uh, Paul was mm. martyred in Rome for his faith later on. So something big happened. Yeah. Um, what happened? Yeah. So uh, exactly. We have to explain that. Somebody's got to explain that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Somebody has to explain it. Paul explains it as an appearance of the risen Lord. His life was totally turned upside down. Similarly, this happened to uh, James, who was a skeptic. You know, everything was going great for him, too. He was a good Jewish boy. He did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, he, you know, he he's reported to have been a part of um, these appearances, to have, to have seen them. And, you know, then he's a, mm -hmm. he's suddenly a leader in the Jerusalem church and then later martyred for his faith, which is reported by Josephus, who was also not a Christian. So right. have you got this stuff, the unbeliever and the leader in the church? Have you got this in, a, you know, something early? And multiple sources. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm starting to look for this now. Yes. Yeah. So um, Mark is probably the earliest gospel. Uh -huh. And Mark 3 talks about James being an unbeliever. We also have this uh, reported by John, who was. Okay, two sources, one early. Got it. Yep. What exactly. about leader in the Jerusalem church? Yeah, we find that in Acts 12, 17 and in Galatians 1, 19. Okay, two sources. Galatians is early. All right. I'm getting good at this now. All right. So. <laughs> But they're all biblical sources? Right. They're all biblical sources, and Matthew and Luke share a source. If Matthew and Luke share an earlier source, uh, we may only, in, in the in the case of Matthew and Luke, be talking about one source. I, I don't know that, by the way. I'm not making that a, a statement of fact, but just that it's possible. And yes, as you said, these are all... Uh, and by the way... <laughs> When I say Matthew and Luke, just once again, we don't know who wrote Matthew and Luke. No, they're, they're, and we they, don't they know don't if they claim. Yeah, quite. And we don't know if there wasn't collaboration either, because we don't know the individuals. So there oh, are lots that's of a good unknowns point. here. Right. Not only may they have shared the same original source, but there could have been collaboration between the two unknown authors of of Matthew and Luke. So too speculative for me to pick up there. Yeah. And for me, when I hear multiple attestation, my mind doesn't go, oh, well, two's more than one. Sure, that's good enough. I would probably actually rather have a few more. Yeah. I've heard some skeptics say this. So Paul is writing this and he's recording this early creed. And I know that, you know, uh, Cross and Ordi and Cross and Ludeman, I think both of them mentioned that Galatians as a confirm, confirm a confirmation on the creed because he goes and visits the eyewitnesses and the eyewitnesses, Peter, and maybe others, maybe you know if there's others, I would think he would have met with everybody in Jerusalem who was there, maybe maybe James. Yeah, and, uh, so Galatians um, uh, 1 verses 8 through 10 mm -hmm. report that he met with Peter and James in Jerusalem. Okay. I would imagine he right. probably uh, met with more than two people while he was there, but he reports having... John's there. Yeah, and by uh, Galatians 2, John is mentioned, yeah. Okay, good. 
it sounds like they're talking about the same stuff. But some people say that Paul's gospel statement in 1 Corinthians is different uh, from what's in the four gospels. What would you say to that? Well, that's just not based on any sort of historical fact. The The oldest mm-hmm. historical documents report that Paul visited with the apostles, um, you know, James and, and Peter, and then another visit with John. And in both of these visits, they were speaking about the gospel message. And so the Peter and James and John were were confirming and affirming uh, that Paul's message was fully accurate and vice versa. Paul was also making sure that Peter and James uh, and the others were reporting on the facts as he knew them to be true as well. So there was a lot of accountability. There were checks and balances going on here. Yeah, I like that. Now, you see, I don't interpret this as checks and balances. I get the impression that this is that collaboration that I referenced earlier. This is the details being repeated to Paul, so then Paul writes them down. So we're back to, it's not an independent source. It's heard from where the source is coming from and repeated. It's shared source, not multiple sources. Completely agree. And and I want to just bring up, early in, early in that section, Wintery Night says, Paul is recording a creed. Yeah. It's a song again, um, isn't it? <laughs> well, and and so there's a lot of difference. I, I think this is such an interesting psychological admission. There's a lot of difference between report uh, between recording a creed and reporting history. Yeah. Recording a creed is different than reporting history. Also. The very same conditions that can make for accountability are the conditions that can make for cooking the books. So what does it take for accountability? We see this in journals that are peer-reviewed, right? You can get a panel of people that are committed to reporting the facts, and they go through through a peer-review process, and the ending publication is more reliable because of what these people did to verify. Yeah. But that very same setup can also create collusion. Mm-hmm. And in accounting systems, we worry about collusion. In IT, we worry about collusion. And so we, we try to put systems in place to break down the potential for collusion. What we don't have here that I think we need. Uh, look, maybe the, maybe these people were not colluding. Maybe maybe this is a good independent review board. But here's what we don't have: we don't have systems and methods. And you can't get me to believe one or the other. Well, you probably could get me to believe collusion easier than you could reliable accountability, just because collusion is easier, right? But you can't get me to believe that there's no collusion here, that this is reliable accountability back and forth without the systems and methods. Yeah. The other thing that struck me while listening to this bit, and (laughs) I'm laughing because to me it's so obvious, but let's put in a modern equivalent here. You have a serious event happen and there's multiple people involved and the police arrive and they are and they take away several witnesses. What's the first thing that the police do? 
they separate the witnesses so that they can't spend time together to collaborate and align their stories. Mm -hmm. They keep the witnesses separate. So when they interview them and write down the accounts, there's the minimum of cross-contamination between their stories. What has been described here in what they've just been talking about is Paul going to the apostles to get their version of events. So then when he goes away and writes down his bits, he's already got their versions in mind. He's got their stories. He's got their narratives. He's got their their creeds. He's not writing down something that's unique. He's not writing down something independently. Mm -hmm. This is not independent attestation. Right. To the point of independent attestation and, and collusion, there was an article yesterday or the day before about Dolly 2 and Google's new AI engine. So these two engines will take a text string like a cat made out of spaghetti and meatballs, and the system will actually build an image, a new image from the training set of a cat made from spaghetti and meatballs. And it'll do that with all sorts of text prompts. You can ask it for a cat in a spacesuit, for cars racing underwater, whatever you want. Uh, so where am I going with this? Well, as it turns out, both systems are trained with vast training sets, really, really large training sets. Here's one of the interesting features. Even with artificial intelligence researchers doing the very best they can do to create a system that draws images without bias, the bias still creeps in. So here's one example. They asked for some furry rodent, might've been beavers or uh, something like that, dressed in royal robes. What was interesting was that the majority of images showed the creatures dressed in Western royal attire. Okay. Because the training set simply had more Western royalty. Western royalty was overrepresented. So what right. am I saying? That even with very good checks and balances, with our very best efforts, our biases still creep in. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, that was very long to get to uh, a discussion of bias, but hopefully it was useful. Like this because Ludemann and Crossan both mentioned Galatians, so they're accepting that there was some interaction with these eyewitnesses as well. Yeah, and I'll go ahead. Interaction with the eyewitnesses. There we go again. The bias that Andrew was talking about, the collaboration that I was talking about, not right. independent. And mentioned right. that Galatians is one of seven letters of the Apostle Paul that everybody who's a scholar in this area would agree are valid, reliable, historical letters of the Apostle Paul. There is written by Paul and early. Exactly. Virtually no okay. disagreement by anyone at all. So yeah, fine. Paul wrote the letters. That does not mean that the content of the letters is reliable. <laughs> you know, right. We don't know whether there was about. disagreement. Yes. Right. Right. How do you know there was no disagreement? We don't have their independent attestations. Why? Why does Paul get to report for everybody. I do not understand. Okay, sorry, I'm getting excited. Yeah, don't get excited. All right, so I'll give you your minimal facts. I'll, I'll play the skeptic. I'll give you your minimal facts. Fine. 
Uh, what is what is the most common <laughs> what is the most common naturalistic response to this set of minimal facts? Because I know these guys don't go where Craig goes in the debates. I've right. seen those debates. Right. So they disagree with him. So yeah. So in the uh, probably about I don't know when were those debates? Uh, the early two thousands, the ones that I've I've mentioned. Um, I I watched them later than that. Nineties. Nineties. That's what I was thinking. Okay. So yeah. Um, in the nineties, the most common and non-miraculous explanation for the minimal facts was the hallucination theory. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll go ahead and say now that that most non-Christians, atheists, have been persuaded at this point that that's not very likely after all. But this is what they were arguing for in the 1990s, and this this is still the, the best um, explanation they have, even though they agree it's not a good explanation. Now, I'm going to object to a big chunk of that. I don't think that most people say that it was a hallucination. Yes, there are people who have said it, but I don't think that most people have said it. Certainly my experience, and I was a Christian in the 90s, my experience and my only ever exposure to people saying it was a hallucination was when I was reading books by Christians about answering cases against the resurrection was they always listed the hallucination as an objection. I only ever saw the hallucination objection in the context of Christians countering it. I never, ever experienced anybody actually saying it. And I think this is another one of these cases of things being over eggs far greater than they actually are. I don't necessarily buy the hallucination bit, as I said earlier, but I, I don't think it's impossible, right? And, and everything doesn't need to have the same cause. But there's another, I mean, every, every occurrence of multiple people seeing a supposed risen Jesus doesn't need to be attributed to hallucination. There can be multiple causes. But here's the real point. And this is what evidence-based thinking looks like, folks. If you want me to help you determine what accounts for a group of people supposedly seeing the risen Jesus, then give me those people's individual accounts. Time, place, were they taking drugs? Were they starving? What were their emotional commitments at the time? Who was the leader of the pack and what were they being told? Were they emotionally charged at the moment? Was it a religious circumstance? Were these people convinced previously, maybe they were Jews, and were they previously convinced that miracles were already possible? So they were looking for, look, we don't have independent attestation of these, what we have is Paul making claims. That's what's being leaned on here. That's what's being leaned on here. Oh, look, Paul says this over and over. I don't care. Don't care. If you want me to help you figure out why some group may or may not have thought that they saw the risen Jesus, we ha- and, and when I say may not, there, there may be people who didn't. They're not being reported. Neither are the independent attestations of the people that did. But if you really want us to help you figure out what might account for these things, that's the attestations we need. We have to be able to get inside their reports, reports we don't have. Yeah, exactly. And then there was something else that was said there was that the hallucination is the best explanation that we've got. Nuh-uh, I don't even accept that. It is by a long way, not the best explanation we've got. A far better explanation is that the resurrection never happened. And these reports are an evolved narrative that happened over a period of years. 
that's far, far better. Right. Uh, uh, reports that are evolved narratives over years that, that are attested to by one guy. Yeah, written about <laughs> years later. He didn't write about these events in 33. He wrote about them right. years later. Let's not forget that. Now, right. And I think it would be fair to say, so some some people are necessarily saying, okay, but what about the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Okay, that, that's fair enough. So those are also potential sources other than Paul. But beyond not having the independent reports, again, we just have a person reporting for a group, whoever the person is, and we don't know who the person is, but we have a person reporting for a group. And beyond that, we don't have any real way to assess the credibility of the source. Nice. So if, if that's what you're thinking, folks, if you're thinking, but we're not just talking about Paul, we're also talking about, you know, the, the resurrection of Jesus and the gospel accounts and, and that uh, the apostles and some disciples said they saw. OK, fine. I get that. It doesn't change my objection. No. 20 minutes in, halfway through. So, um, oh, well, why is it not a good explanation? Why do you do they think that or do you think that? Well, why do you think that? Yeah. So the reason that there's now a widespread consensus that the hallucination theory is not all that reliable is that, um, for one thing, hallucinations occur in the mind. They are individual experiences, much like dreams. Mm -hmm. Theory does not explain the, you know, the the diversity of the appearances themselves. These were not people even reporting the exact same uh, experience. These are different people in, in different circumstances, different sizes of groups right. over the course of about 40 days. It just does not fit anything like we have recorded in history at any other time. So right, at least not until the end of the the age. Right. Yeah. Right. Resurrection is yeah, what happens right to all the righteous people who. Okay, so I just want to tie two threads here together. So there's this idea they're talking about hallucinations and a little group of soldiers that are in the desert and they see, uh, you know, they have some uh, group hallucination about water and uh, the wintry night says well, there's a big difference between seeing the risen Jesus and seeing a hallucination of water. Yeah, there is a big difference. We experience water every day. We don't experience people rising from the dead every day. Well, what do you think more likely accounts for that? Do you think that it's more likely that there was a risen Jesus? Or do you think that it is more likely that there was some religious event that's placing them into a state where they might have the same kind of hallucination? If hallucination is unlikely, Resurrection is a lot more unlikely. So yeah. what I'm trying to get at here is in anybody's mind, I would be interested in how you get to a place where you say, even if you think there's a God of the universe that can resurrect people, how do you get to a place where you say that is more likely than group hallucination? I want to know how you get there. Enlighten me. Yeah. Okay, sorry. No worry. Let's carry on. Have a relationship with God and are, you know, well, it's in this, in the Jewish case, it's Jewish people. Mm -hmm. The righteous Jewish people are all resurrected, right. you know, uh, into at heaven. once at the end of the and age. into heaven, not back onto yeah. earth right, yeah, right after they die. Yeah, the, you're exactly right. Right. So this is completely different from what these people are right. coming up with, these early Christians. 
So is that a defeater for the hallucination hypothesis? Yeah, I mean, it, it really is because hallucinations, to quote William Lane Craig, he says, hallucinations have no extra mental correlate, but are projections of the percipient's own brain. So the person who is perceiving the hallucination um, doesn't come up mm -hmm. with additional information and, you know, worldviews and theologies and such in their hallucinations. They're, they're what, whatever is already in their mind is projected into what they see or hear. And so it, it just mm -hmm. doesn't make sense that the Jews would have concluded, even if they had had a, a hallucination of Jesus, they wouldn't have concluded that he was brought back mm -hmm. to life to earth from the dead then and there. They would have concluded, oh, he's alive in, in paradise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If they're looking for vindication, like they joined the Jesus club and their Jesus got killed and they're like explaining to their families why they were not crazy to have followed this guy. They could just say, oh, well, we saw him. You know, we saw an appearance of him rising up into the clouds, you know, mm -hmm. with a halo and everything like that. And that was God saying that. He was vindicated and all his ideas were correct. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they didn't have to come up with a bodily resurrection guy who's like eating fish exactly. and all this stuff. Right. And it certainly doesn't explain why 500 people at once would have hallucinated. And then, you know, the Apostle Paul would have pointed people to say, go interview those people. Now, you see, so we've got this bit of the Jewish uh, traditions here and how this is different. So for me, this reinforces the idea that this is an evolved narrative that changed over time, that became more and more complex and more and more convoluted as time went on and as people repeated it. You know, there were other documents, I, I believe, in the Dead Sea Scrolls or something, or which or mm. the uh, Assanines, I can't remember what their name is, who talk about these things differently, you know, have different uh, traditions about the things that went on at this period. This all lends credence to the idea that it's an evolved narrative that changed beyond, resur beyond resurrection, beyond recognition uh, as, as time went on. Paul says, go ask the 500. Doesn't tell you where to find them. <laughs> no, and nobody ever did. Where is the Pew survey? Of the 500, I, I, I know I'm using modern research standards against something that happened 2000. Sorry, if you want to convince me, we know what good evidence looks like. This is not it. Yeah, Paul saying, they're there, go and ask them, isn't evidence. The documentary reports of people asking them and them each being independent and them each having really good convincing correlations without there being obvious co collaboration is what gets us towards the conversation of evidence. Right. And it's not just go and ask them if they saw a risen Jesus. Oh, no, 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 no. It's where were you? Where did you see the risen Jesus? Tell me what he was doing at the time. Who did he interact with? Is there some way for you to objectively verify that that was the risen Jesus and not a fact? You see, we don't have anything like good research data, nothing like good research data. And to attempt to promote this as good research, as something that you can reliably believe, as something that you should you should stake your life on is, is for me, 
the worst kind of lie. Okay, yeah. sorry. I'm going to get excited again. So I'm gonna... <laughs> Calm it down, boy. Calm it down. <laughs> right. They'll testify that they really did see the resurrected Christ. Just none of, yeah, this, it's the hallucination theory really starts to fall apart big mm-hmm. time. Okay, another one of the appearances, the appearance to Peter. That one, you, I could kind of see this. Like he just finished denying Jesus a couple of times and the cock crows. I don't know if, if that story is multiply attested and early enough, but if you accept it, then that might give you evidence to think that Peter's appearance is the result of guilt, you know? Yeah, so th- yeah. so yeah, Gerd Ludeman actually uh, theorizes that Peter had a hallucination and then Peter's hallucination became contagious. Um, but uh, even Peter, that seems weird. Yeah, exactly. I mean, hallucinations, yeah, are not, <laughs> are not contagious. It's, it's, it's not the flu, but um, <laughs> the, the historical records don't report much on, on Peter's state of mind. But what we do know is that Peter thought Jesus had failed him. He, he most likely after Peter, after Jesus was killed, and dead, mm-hmm. Peter mm-hmm. would not have been uh, likely to be to be sitting around going, "How shameful that I uh, that I betrayed the Messiah." He was, you know, he was undoubtedly thinking, "I was. How could I have been so fooled? I thought this guy was the Messiah, and now he's dead." So mm-hmm. he thought Jesus had failed him, and then you know he would have been really struggling in all likelihood with with dashed expectations, not with not with his own personal shame or guilt once he thought Jesus was dead. Mm-hmm. So this doesn't even fit. Yeah, this is, there's. So let me, um, they haven't maybe been explicit enough for me here. So this Peter thing they talk about, is this where Peter, where, rather where Jesus says to Peter about Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Is it, is that the uh, thing that they're talking about, Andrew? I'm not sure. So the place where the cock crows that's at the that's is, during uh, Jesus' cri- trial, isn't it? Before the crucifixion. That that's right. It's before the crucifixion, and um, and um, they're in a group, and yeah. Peter separates, and Jesus has said to him, "Before the sun rises, you'll deny yeah. me three times." Uh, Peter gets separated, and he's asked, and he says, "I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy." And and then, <laughs> uh, coincidentally, uh, the cock crows, and Peter's like. Oh no, he was right. I did. Oh man. Um, so. But see, that story in itself doesn't make any sense to me because, again, in that narrative, doesn't Jesus turn around and look at Peter at that point? But when you am I am I remembering it right? It's been so long since I I've actually so. read the passage. Yes, but yes. That's how I, I remember it. Yeah. But Jesus was inside, being questioned. There probably wasn't a public audience to that. Peter was described as being waiting outside and there's the servant girl and various other people there. You get the impression it might have been around the fire keeping warm because it was dark and, and all that. So there would have been walls and multiple rooms between them. So how could Jesus have turned around and looked at Peter? You know, there's there's elements of that entire narrative that simply don't fit and again, this lends it to me. These are things that are written down after the event. And then you go and that just ties into the 
feed my lambs, feed my sheep thing that Jesus says to Peter in terms of the, the rebuilding of Peter. You know, I'll build my church on you because you're Peter the Rock or whatever it is. Yeah, it all builds into a, a narrative. These are things that are written down to make the whole thing sound grander than it really is. I agree. And I always thought when I when I read this in college, I was thinking about these religious ideas and, and about the notion of free will and all of that sort of thing. I always wondered if there didn't have to be some free will tampering here for this story to even turn out that way. So we're talking about a relatively short span of time. Whatever time of night it is when Jesus says before the, you know, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then what happens? Peter doesn't remember from then on that Jesus has said you're going to deny me. So did he take that thought out of Peter's head? Did Peter legitimately forget? If that thought had to be taken out of Peter's head, there's a tampering there. You had to fool with him. And if Peter did remember, this is one of Jesus's most devout, right? I mean, this, this is the guy that's on the mountain during the transfiguration. Uh, Peter's well plugged in. This is the guy that Jesus gets out of the boat to rescue on the water. And, mm-hmm. and so Peter just doesn't remember, right? Peter, Jesus says, and wouldn't you think this would be an important thing between the, the master and the student, right? I mean, if you said to me, you know, we don't have that relationship. We're just, we're just good friends, right? But if you said to me, uh, Andrew, uh, before the night is over, you're going to deny that you know me three times. Zero way I'm going to forget that. Yeah. Why? Because it would be important between us. Yeah. That would be important to me if you said it to me. You know, I'd do it just to be bloody minded, but I'm British. Are you? (laughs) Well, I wouldn't necessarily blame you. I mean, you know, I don't know that dude. Look, yeah, look, I'm cracked. It's fine. I wouldn't I wouldn't blame you. But the whole story bothered me from the beginning. Uh, It it feels like a just so kind of story. Yeah, absolutely. It does a lot of problems with the hallucination theory mm-hmm. if they uh, accept that there's too many holes in their case for the hallucination theory mm-hmm. what what's their best explanation for the minimal facts then yeah i'll tell you i'll tell you what the what scholars are, are primarily saying today because they know that that even their best uh, previously best explanation the hallucination theory is quite unlikely what what mm-hmm. those in the know the latest scholarship of today um is saying is that something happened. This is the best they have. Something happened. Well, yeah. I mean, no kidding. Something happened, but, but they they have, they don't know what it was because there is currently no. Oh, they're, they're literally saying something happened. They're not saying what the something is. Exactly. Exactly. Because they literally have no naturalistic explanation that is reasonable. Shift to the bargain today. <laughs> this is classic Christians misrepresenting intentionally or otherwise what atheists and atheist scholars are actually saying is, I don't know, is this poisoning the well? Is this lying? Is I, how, how do we classify what we've just heard here? Because it, it's nonsense. Yes, hallucination is nonsense. Yes, hallucination is really unlikely, but it's still more likely than taking the gospel narrative as literal truth. And there are plenty of other things. We've been talking nonstop about evolved narrative. What we have, and there's a bit more to this. There's a shifting of burden of proof here. So skeptics say, and by the way, I'm not saying something happened. No, me neither. Uh, If the mythicists are right, nothing happened. Not weighing in necessarily there, but I'm not convinced anything did happen. 
But if something happened, it is not the skeptic's job to show some naturalistic explanation. Why? Well, I've given you a lot of reasons up through the uh, through the bulk of this show. We don't have enough information to go after any kind of explanation. But make no mistake about it. The Christian claim is not only that people thought this happened, but that it was, in fact, a miraculous occurrence where God bent the laws of nature, brought a guy back to life. People saw him and then he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter one. That's what you've got to prove. And if skepticism is leveled at that, it should be. It's a ridiculous story. And. Similar kinds of stories happen in other religions where Christians say, oh, well, that's clearly ridiculous. Yeah. We'll get to more of that. Yeah. And just one more point on here to address the something happened thing. It is perfectly reasonable to see an account like this and say, that's weird. I That narrative makes no sense. I'm pretty sure that there's something that those guys believe may have happened but we have absolutely not enough information to be able to get to an accurate or even testable narrative about what happened. So I'm just going to leave it at that. That is a perfectly reasonable position to take. And none of that validates you believing the miracle. Right. By the way, I don't think Sai Baba raised people from the dead either. And there's video of that. So, <laughs> you know, uh, what do you want? What do you want me to do? You got an account that's two thousand years old, and uh, just uh, I can't even be bothered to get worked up over it. It's crazy. Yeah. Okay. Ten minutes left. Let's go. All of their the naturalistic oh, no. theories have been really disregarded by atheists, by agnostics, by you know scholars oh, no. of all colors. So, so yeah, they don't have a great answer. Yeah. So that's, that's what they, that's what they have. And, you know, I'll point out that when they say something happened, but it wasn't a resurrection, they're not rejecting the evidence. They're rejecting the conclusion. The evidence overwhelmingly points to a, an actual literal resurrection. The no, it does bullshit. not. <coughs> that is so much nonsense. No. No, no, I don't know how to respond seriously to that. I, I, I can't do it. I'm sorry. I, I, I just can't do it. No, nope. sorry, no, no. Overwhelming evidence. No, no, sorry. I can't do it. Moving on. Opposing theories yeah. fail across the board. It seems to me like it is so much more likely that somebody made it all up and you're believing a lie that is so much more likely i'm sorry you know i so i i want to give a call out to professor brian blaze here um because brian has taught us all something and uh may, may brian be uh granted the gift of eternal life i hate to bring up Bayes here i i won't try to talk about math in any specific way, but I just want to say the base rate here for resurrection is, uh, you know, if you take all the resurrections in the Bible, half a dozen of them, maybe, but let's say you got a dozen. It's a dozen over every human being that has ever lived throughout time. Call it 10 billion. Uh, actually, it's probably more than that, 12 billion, maybe. 
so you've got one to a billion. Your 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 base likelihood of this dude being resurrected, even if you believe that there have been twelve in history, your your base rate is one in a billion. And the evidence that you have is this thin stuff that we've been dissecting here. Not good enough. Yeah, it's it's saying yeah, on seriously on the evidence thing, what would be insurmountable evidence? is some way we can actually go back there, find some DNA in a tomb, identify yeah. that there was a dead body in that tomb, then being able to track that DNA to elsewhere at a later date. That would then prove that uh, that body somehow became alive again. That kind of technicality. And yes, I'm um, fully aware that that is utterly impossible to achieve, which is why the evidence cannot be considered overwhelming because all we have, literally, all we have is ancient documentation of questionable veracity. That is not high quality evidence under any scenario at all. Even if we take some of these things as as being accurate and recent, you know, even if what Paul wrote down was not after collaborating with the apostles, even if those 500 people could, some of them could be tracked down and their, their accounts repeated. It is still all just documentation of really ancient age and of questionable veracity. That's really all it is. And we, no one ever calls that unquestionable evidence. You need something that can be tested and replicated so we can actually get something objective out of it. Texts and reading a narrative is by definition not objective. It's subjective. You're reading somebody's opinion. You can't call it unquestionable evidence. This is so much overreach by the Christian. It's unreal. And that is why I laugh and I scoff when it happens. Sorry, Christians, if you found that uh, offensive or disrespectful. And I know Christian listeners will find that offensive and disrespectful. But I genuinely have no other response to it when you say things like that. To take that same page out of your playbook, I, I would be willing to stand behind the notion that everything that is in the Bible is a proposition about fact. It is not evidence itself. So, I mean, let me put it another way. Suppose I were to write down that I could take Drano. That's a that's a drain cleaner in the United States, right? It's a liquid drain cleaner. It cleans out you know, gunk in your pipes. Okay. Suppose I were to write down the proposition, pour Drano into a small container, and you put small bits of aluminum foil in that container and you capped it off. The chemical reaction between the aluminum foil and the Drano would cause an explosion equivalent to the small amount of Drano and, and the aluminum foil. That's a written chemical proposition, but make no mistake about it. It is only a proposition. I heard this little chemical experiment as, as a part of a news story. Some girl uh, out in California was kicked out of school because she'd seen this experiment in chemistry class, and she performed it by herself later on outside the school building on campus, and they expelled the girl from school. I saw this little bit of chemistry as part of a news story. But even that, if I were to write it down, is only a proposition that I saw a news story, that it contained this little bit of chemistry in it, and that the chemistry result would be an explosion. You'd actually have to do something 
to verify my proposition. Me writing it down doesn't mean I'm right. It doesn't mean I'm right. And so the only way to gather evidence is to do the little risky thing and buy the Drano and be very careful. Hopefully, uh, you know, you get a little aluminum foil. And if you if you care, you're careful and you and you reproduce it to find out. Here's my point. If you're an evidence based thinker, how does any of this as propositional material get you to there was a resurrection? Yeah of evidence here that is agreed to by most critical scholars. You've got the critical scholars agreeing to the evidence in their own words. They don't like the conclusion, so they come up with something different. You shoot down what they come up with, and then they go, well, something happened, but not what you say happened. Exactly. So it's Again, it's overstated what they were saying. He, they weren't agreeing that there was evidence. Right. Right. In fact, the very, the very nature of this disagreement is that scholars are not agreeing that this is evidence. Right. The, the very nature of this disagreement is that the scholars that disagree are saying uh, something happened, but it wasn't miraculous. There's not an agreement here. Yeah. Seems, it seems to me that this is starting to make me really want to try this out. I mean, I do get into this, but it, it seems kind of fun. Um, oh, it's a blast. It, it's a blast when you go when when you it seems like you're going to win yes. doing this. Yeah, exactly. It just it Here's always cracks me up me. when when somebody who prides himself on being some great, you know, uh, atheist or agnostic scholar or pantheist scholar, mm -hmm. um, you know, who rejects the resurrection and is all proud of knowing all, you know, um, all these, uh, the facts of what happened and everything. When I ask them, so how do you explain the minimal facts? And all they can come up with is something happened. They, they either have to deny one or more of these minimal facts to get out of this, right. or they're going to have to come up with a better naturalistic explanation that nope. accounts for the facts as well as the resurrection explanation. Yeah, you're absolutely no. Come on then. First, bring it if on. you want me to, be, if if you want me to believe, this is really really easy. Reproduce a resurrection. It's easy. We can stop right now. Ever having this conversation again, by just proving a resurrection is possible by your God. It easy. doesn't have to be a resurrection. It can be your eyesight. We've already talked about that this episode. Right. Right now, but but to carry this so so, I don't have to propose a better explanation because your explanation isn't any good on any proposition. There are three possible positions. I accept the truth of the proposition. I deny the proof of the of the proposition, or I await evidence for the truth or falsity of the proposition. And to Go around and say, oh, we either have to deny mine or promote yours. That's simply not the way things work. And we do this every day in our own lives. People, uh, somebody says, um, hey, Blue Apron, that's the best company for food delivery in the world. And I might believe it because I used, I've used a company and I've used several others and, and they have proven, at least to my satisfaction, that they're the best for me. I might disbelieve it. I might disbelieve it because a high percentage of, 
of people get sick eating the food. Uh, I don't think that's true. Sorry, sorry, Blue Apron, not throwing you under the bus here. Or I can simply say I've never used food services like that. And so I have no reason to think that they are or are not the best. I await some evidence to show me one or the other. I don't actually Absolutely have a right. position. Sorry, go ahead. And in fact, um, one of uh, one of the facts that used to be widely accepted and is still accepted by about 75 percent of scholars is um, that the tomb of Jesus was actually found empty. But what mm-hmm. has happened is that some of these non-Christian scholars have um, mm-hmm. kind of found a way to say they reject the empty tomb without having evidence for it by saying things like, well, well, sometimes um, they left the bodies on the cross, even though all the historical evidence we have shows that the Romans were were more than happy to accommodate the Jews mm-hmm. uh, uh, for, you know, especially in their holy days to, you know, take no, down, take down a body. And yeah. so, I, I, you know. I don't know enough about that particular thing. I'm prepared to grant it, but it still doesn't get us to the empty tomb. My understanding is that there was a mass grave for criminals. Yeah. I I don't know which one of these propositions is more true, that Romans were happy to accommodate Jesus. I don't think Romans were very happy to accommodate anything. (laughs) You know, that wasn't Roman. But uh, even if they sometimes did accommodate, Let's, let's say they mostly did. That still doesn't mean that Jesus didn't end up in a common grave for criminals. We're talking about the empty tomb here. Um, I don't know. Is, is, your, is your belief in the resurrection so thin that one of your minimum basic facts is the grave was empty? Is that really what you're down to? That That... The body didn't show up in the tomb, and so he must have been resurrected. Come on. Yeah. Well, you were talking about enemy attestation earlier. Mm-hmm. The story of the burial of Jesus, there's a, uh, a a very famous like member of the Jewish community, Joseph of Arimathea, who is involved in the burial. Yes. If they're upset with that community right now, it's unlikely that they would have had one member of that community doing the right thing and giving Jesus a, a, a decent, honorable burial. Exactly. So once again, it's just it doesn't make sense for for the people at that time in that situation to have made up that detail to make a, a Jewish mm-hmm. leader look so good and sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, see, for me, the whole Joseph or Arimathea thing reads like something that was added later because he's not a big feature of the story at all. He just appears here and then disappears again. Yeah, it seems to me far more likely that Jesus' body was dumped in the mass grave, as you mentioned earlier, and this whole Joseph Arimathea and the family tomb and then it being empty again was all something that was inserted in there. It was Joseph Arimathea is probably a narrative device to get them into a tomb so that they can create an empty tomb for the resurrection. Right. You have talked about several times in the course of this podcast, narrative evolution, right? That, that this story seems to have evolved, especially when we do have occasion to compare it to other historical documents, right? The story seems to have evolved. You, you want to talk about a better explanation than the minimum basic facts? Evolution of the story. Yeah. Far better explanation. Yeah.
And then again, like you said before, the earliest witnesses to the empty tomb are women witnesses. And I've heard skeptics who I've heard one skeptic who debated William Lane Craig say that was a very convincing piece of evidence for him for accepting it. Right. So if you can get the empty tomb into your list of minimal facts, that would be even worse for the hallucination explanation because the hallucination explanation doesn't explain how the tomb got empty. Exactly. So it would be even yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact remains that, you know, all of the message started right there in Jerusalem where all of these events occurred. And the mm-hmm. only thing that anybody would have had to have done to shut down mm-hmm. Christianity for good right from the, the beginning body. is show a body. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. OK, so give me your summation. Give me your conclusion. OK, so the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead best explains the minimal facts. That is how I would Hold summarize right the bottom line here for all. I think the reason that they were just, sorry, they were just talking about all anybody ever had to do to keep Christianity from getting started was show a body. That's fine. But that is a retrospective view on today. Mm-hmm. It's not fair to say that Pontius Pilate should look 2,000 years into the future and see what Christianity might become, and then say, well, that's worse than whatever alternative I can imagine, so I'm going to show the body of the dead Jesus. This sort of retrospective doesn't work. It's not as if the people in the first century cared to show somebody in the way that you might think of today. There's no looking into the future and saying, oh, well, the world would be better off if everyone was uh, Muslim. Right. So we'll show the dead body of Jesus. So I think that's a particularly poor point. Yeah. Christianity wasn't a big deal. In fact, it wasn't even Christianity at the time. It was just a spinoff of Judaism without a name. Yeah. I do want to grant something, though, on the assumption that all the minimal facts are accurate and actually happened, then yes, I accept that the resurrection is the most likely explanation. However, I don't accept any. I don't accept the minimal facts, as they've been saying. There are far too many problems with them. There are far too many better explanations, specifically the evolved narrative. And so I just cannot get to the resurrection at all. Right. All the reasons that we've been talking about, it explains mm-hmm. why the tomb was found empty why the disciples saw post-mortem appearances of Jesus and why the Christian faith came into being. It also explains why the body of Jesus was gone, um, why people repeatedly said they saw Jesus alive despite his public execution. It fits the historical context because, you know, Jesus had claimed to be deity in a whole variety of different ways through his actions, through his words. In fact, that's, that's what he was accused of. He was accused of blasphemy and that's why he was crucified. And you don't really, if he wasn't claiming to be God, you know, you don't have any good reason for him being uh, executed for blasphemy. But so Jesus was making these claims. He was, um, he was, according to countless eyewitnesses, you know, he was um, doing miracles and claiming Uh to be deity. And so it really fits the historical context of Jesus' life and his claims to say, to, you know, conclude that there really was a resurrection. Really, the only problem, uh, and I'll put that in quotes, problem <laughs> that exists with the resurrection theory is that 
it was a miracle. But if Jesus, I mean, rather, if God exists, then a miracle is really not that far-fetched. Yeah. The miracle part is by no means the only or even the biggest problem. (laughs) The biggest problem is that humans are prone to bend the truth, to lie, to change stories, to elaborate for their own agendas and many other things. Yes. And I don't know what she means by historical context. One of your complaints and my complaint, one of the complaints in the in the skeptical community is we don't have enough external history about this character, Jesus, and the notion that he performed miracles. You talked about the the risen saints uh, earlier. That was uh, Matthew 27, 51-54. Are we talking about those saints? Because, by the way, the people that had their dead loved one come back to them in the great zombie uprising, none of them, not one, wrote a historical account saying, my dead husband or my dead mother or my dead daughter or my dead son, my dead loved one came back to me when Jesus was crucified. We don't have a story like that other than Matthew 27, 51 to 54. So what am I saying? It's not just that story. There's precious little historical context unless you think that the Old Testament and the New Testament are historical context. There's precious little historical context when we try to carve out uh, what might have happened with the Jesus of Bethlehem. Yeah. Yeah, the other problem I've heard some skeptical scholars say is they don't like the idea that there's a miracle in one religion and the others don't have that. So there's a, a pluralistic argument for, uh, not really an argument, but kind of like a pluralistic reason for wanting to die the resurrection. John Dominic Crossan talks about that in, in his debate with Craig. Mm-hmm. Matthew jumping in on the edit. Link 20 is the audio of the 1995 debate between William Lane Craig and John Crossan. I did not hear Crossan say what Wintry Knight says he said. He does, however, make reference to healings at Lourdes in France, but I didn't hear him say miracles are unique to Christianity, merely that faith can play a part in healing. So either I have misunderstood what I heard, or Wintry Knight misunderstood what Crossan said. If you agree with Wintry Knight, please email reasonpress at gmail.com with the timestamp of where Crossan says this, and I will check it out again. Also, You heard Andrew say that he's not heard skeptics say this, and I haven't either. However, what we have heard is Christians claim that miracles are more common in Christianity. I just want to add one quick thing here. So whenever you're making a case for a miracle, as you're making a historical case that a miracle has occurred, a miracle is the best explanation for this. I think, it, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I think that Christians need to be ready to make a case for some kind of supernatural being who could, in principle, do miracles, right. like creating the universe. If you've got a being who can create the universe and you can prove that or argue for that with mainstream science, resurrections are a piece of cake. Right. So I normally use six scientific arguments when I argue for a supernatural creator and designer. Yeah. Why don't you mention what those are? Okay. The origin of the universe is is popular, like the Kalam argument, uh, coupled with you know mainstream cosmology. Absolutely. Um, co- no, that doesn't get to a supernatural. Well, I guess it could potentially get to a deist god, but it doesn't get to the resurrection god. 
the, the Kalam is the, the Kalam as commonly stated is this. Everything that begins to exist has cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. For those who, who like logic, there's no God in either the major proposition, the minor proposition, or the conclusion. Yeah. And you cannot use the Kalam to promote a God if there's no God in the propositions. Okay, sorry, go ahead. I'm going to say now, I was going to save it for the very end, but I'm feeling an awful lot of adoration for William Lane Craig in this episode, and it's making my skin go all oh, crawly. Yes, yeah, so, uh, authority, uh, authority fallacy. Yeah. Beep, beep, beep. Cosmic fine tuning, uh, you know, you change the parameters wow. of life, you lose the ability to have complex embodied life. Mm -hmm. uh, the origin of life, not only the building blocks, but the, also the information in, in the living in the simplest replicator. The sudden origin of, of uh, major body plans, phyla, in the Cameron explosion. Right. I'm just going over these quickly. It, people Millions have heard of, of Mike Beattie's irreducible complexity yeah. and molecular machines in general. Uh, you take out a piece and it stops working. And then there's also the habitability argument that there's uh, certain correlates between this, the, our ability to make uh, discoveries and the ability of our planet and our solar system and our uh, galaxy to support life. If you put the two together, it kind of suggests that the designer of the universe wanted the places that support life to also be the best places for making scientific discoveries. This is... Um the whole intelligent design bullshit bingo card really going right. on here yeah yeah these yeah. are all this goes back to the whole thing these are all arguments arguments based on misapplications of set not i was going to say settled science that's exactly the wrong phrase but these are all misapplication of things that scientists are saying about uh, our world and they're twisted by christians to get to their preferred conclusion of god because remember the whole basis of these arguments is they have their conclusion and they're using things that science says to help to navigate a road to their conclusion don't forget that that's very important when you're analyzing these arguments they already have their conclusion these are just a way to try to get you to their conclusion and all of these things none of them actually show demonstrate or prove that there is a god for that you need something else these are just arguments to try to convince you that there might be a God and you have to get you to that God before you can get to the whole resurrection thing. And then you've got all the problems with the resurrection as well. This case is just so flimsy. It wouldn't stand up without a bucket of concrete. It wouldn't. And a couple of minutes ago, Wintery Knight says that he uses these six so that you can plausibly argue, plausibly argue for a God that could do a miracle. If these arguments are any good, why are we arguing plausibilities? I said again, why are we arguing plausibilities? If your God is there and he can do a miracle, why are we having to argue plausibilities? Yeah. We're almost done, aren't we? We are almost done. Three minutes to go. If you sustain any or all of those arguments, you got yourself a creator who can do the work. Uh, that you need right. God to be able to do for this argument to seem reasonable. Exactly. And that and that is, as I said, the one and only uh, so-called problem with the resurrection theory 
is that mm-hmm. it involves a miracle. But uh, yeah, with those arguments, there is mm-hmm. just so much evidence. Like I said, I think there's another problem with the pl- it offends pluralism. Yes. So yes. some people are going to object to it by saying, look, I was raised as a Hindu. I can't accept miracles in other religions because then that would make my religion, you know, false. Well, yeah, exactly. Chris Which Foster. I think is, as you pointed out, is they're strawmanning what skeptics say, but they they are at least bordering on something that skeptics bring up. So I just want to say that here. Miracles are claimed in lots of religious traditions. What skeptics are not saying is, I have a friend that's a Christian, and I have a friend that's a Muslim, and I have a friend that's a Jew, and I have a friend that's a Buddhist, and I have a friend that's a New Age spiritualist, and they all claim some kind of miracles. And I don't want Christianity to be true because it would alienate my other friends. That's not, that is not what's being said. What is being said is that miracles are claimed in lots of religious traditions. And if Christianity wants to claim the sole purview of actual, of actual miracles in its own religion, and to say that other religions don't have any right to claim those miracles, it is Christianity's job to demonstrate that other miracle claims are false. Uh-huh. So there is a, a terrible, pluralism a terrible issue. argument. I mean, that's yeah, that sounds like yeah, uh, I don't sorry. I don't like it because it doesn't feel good to my previous it's, commitment. Yeah, it's two presuppositions. One, miracles don't happen. Two, I don't want my friends who are in other religions feeling right. Bad. And that's not that's something you have to argue for. You don't just get to help yourself right. to that. Right. Um, so to oh, end that's right. off, you I don't want just to get to help ask, yourself. No, and I'm quite happy Sorry, that, to propose that miracles don't happen because I haven't got sufficient evidence to accept that miracles happen. No. Right. Show me a miracle. It's winter. Right. Wintery night's right. You don't just get to help yourself, but it's not the skeptic that has the problem. It's the Christian. Yeah. You can't. <laughs> so anyway, sorry. Thank you for our listeners. What would you recommend to them so that they are as prepared and smooth as you are at making the case for the resurrection? Well, Gary Habermas is, has been studying the resurrection his entire adult life, and mm-hmm. he has recently come out with a book called Risen Indeed. In the first, uh, I, I can't remember if it's the introduction or the first chapter, he gives an update on where we are today with resurrection scholarship, the, the mm-hmm. minimal facts that that most people are using today and such. And then he goes through the major philosophical objections to the resurrection, like um, for example, that the resurrection didn't occur because miracles are not possible, mm-hmm. that the resurrection occurred but cannot be demonstrated because historical mm-hmm. events can't be known, and that the resurrection – and then he, he makes a case for the, the that the resurrection did occur and it can be demonstrated and known. So Risen Indeed by Gary Habermas, great new book out at the end of uh, 2021. I'd recommend that. How about you? I'll have to pick up that book. For me, I'm, I like fighting. So I'm a boy and you know, <laughs> I like military history. So I like debates. I really recommend that people watch a lot of debates so they can get good at um, listening to their opponent talk yeah. uh, and staying calm and then being able to put together what they need to say in a short period of time. Yeah. You know, so that you're not doing all the talking. So I like the I, we mentioned two debates. I actually like the debate between William Lane Craig and James Crossley better than both of those. Mm-hmm. 
So I would say just uh, do, there's I'll, I'll put the link in our show notes. OK, Excellent. to the debate. I wrote a tra- I wrote a summary of it. I think it's a great debate and I would recommend that people watch that. Excellent. OK, so I think that's uh, that's all we have for today's episode. Um, if you like this episode, please uh, like it and comment and share. Right. And that's basically how they finish off lots of recommendations of debates. I'm not a debate person. I don't enjoy watching debates. You know, it's it's not really my thing. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about meaty evidence. Did we have meaty evidence here? Nah, I don't think so. There are some arguments, standard arguments that I'm used to, standard misdirection over what atheists say, also something that I'm used to, continues to frustrate me. Did this get me anywhere near closer to accepting that either there was a God or the resurrection is reasonably considerable? Not a chance. Um, so just my last moment of frustration Um so Desert Rose says at the end, oh, look, there's this great book by uh, Gary Habermas where he goes after the skeptics, yada, yada, yada. If the book was so good, why didn't you bring that content? What did we just spend the last two and a half or three hours dissecting? It, did you not bring your A game? Because you're, yeah. you're recommending his book and, and you're saying, oh, look, at, look, you know, read this. That really, boy, that does the skeptics in. Well, that should have been a part of your A game. <laughs> and, and if it wasn't, what were you what were you doing in preparation? Because you clearly did a lot of preparation. I'm not I'm this is not knocking them. Uh, Desert Rose, I don't know how many hours she spent, but she was well prepared. Yeah. So um, uh, presumably, uh, if Habermas was all that convincing, uh, some of what she said is what Habermas said in his book. And if what she said wasn't what Habermas said, then I don't know why the book was being recommended. So a little bit of frustration there. And I'm, I may still buy the book. I read Habermas's uh, PhD dissertation. He's been going after the minimum basic facts his whole adult life. Uh, you've heard here why I'm not convinced. And Matthew, what about you? No, not convinced at all. I don't rate Habermas particularly highly. Anyway, you know, he's down there in the in the bottom of the barrel, along with uh, John Lennox, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So we made it through, Matthew. We, we got yes, to the other side. we made it through. Thank you, listeners, for also making it through. I, we've been recording for about three hours. I don't know how long it's going to be when I've finished cutting it. We shall see. And you mentioned a friend of the show, Brian Blaze. We're trying to get Brian onto an, an episode to talk about miracles, so there'll be more juiciness in there i always like conversations with brian we're working on it we're having issues with scheduling which we've already alluded to because andrew and i are being frustratingly stubborn at actually being able to find times when we can talk together let alone talk together with guests so that is continuing to be a challenge but it is on the cards along with other people whose names i won't mention because we're still trying to work things out and um that's really it from me me too. Uh, if you like the show, drop us a line at reasonpress at gmail.com. If you'd like to push back on something we had to say, same email Please address. And, yep. Yeah. And if you'd like to come on with us, we've, we've offered a number of challenges, invited folks to, uh, to come alongside and, and uh, state their views. If you'd like to do that, drop us a line. We'd love to have you on. And uh, there is, of course, if the good folks at Night and Rose hear this show, you have an open invitation. 
to still unbelievable. Uh, we like to talk to other podcasters. We generally have a lot of fun with that. We'd love to have you along, uh, either here or, or over there. And uh, so thank you, Matthew, for keeping this lash up running. And uh, I had a blast today. Thank you. Yes, it was it was great to chat again. I name dropped John Lennox not long ago. The episode that will have happened bef- just before this one was me reviewing an episode of John Lennox over on When Belief Dies. That was fun to do. Nice. And yep. I, um, there is another episode with John Lennox on it. I am absolutely a sucker for punishment, which I'm going to try and do, which will probably be up after this one. I don't know if it will be immediately next. It depends on time and what I get done. But there's all that sort of stuff uh, going on and that I'm going through. The podcast is continuing to run and Andrew and I will be on with a guest at some point very, very soon. Until next time, yeah. You have been listening to a podcast from Reasonless. Do you have any thoughts on what you've just heard? Do you have a topic that you would like us to cover? Please send all feedback to reasonpressed at gmail.com. You might even appear on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. To hear more of her music, see the links in our show notes.